call to order the Peace River Town Council regular meeting for Monday, February 26, 2018. To order, and let the record show that the meeting started at four minutes after five. Um, everyone should have, all the councillors should have an agenda in front of them. Um, are there, are there any additions? I'll uh, ask administration first and then. There are none, Your Worship. Okay. Uh, councillors, are there any walk-on items that need to be dealt with? Any deletions? Or would that be asking for too much? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm hearing none. Um, perhaps a motion to adopt the agenda as presented. I'll move. All in favor? In favor. Uh, included in your agenda package should have been the minutes of the February 12th, 2018 regular council meeting. Are there any uh, clarifications, corrections, etc., etc., required? I did read them, uh, Your Worship, and I would move the February 12th minutes as presented. Okay. All in favor of Councillor Needham's motion? Uh, do we have any public hearings, Ms. Bell? There are none, Your Worship. Very good. Uh, this, so that takes us to presentations, and we have our first presentation in the queue is. Uh, uh, the Western Communities Foundation Infrastructure, uh, well, the, the Western Financial Group uh, would like to make a presentation, and it's actually a check presentation. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, yeah, please come up and perhaps introduce yourselves when you're up here, and we'll, uh, we'll get the newspaper to, to get a nice picture of you along with all the counselors. As I understand you. It's a blank check. I think the, uh, the, the good stuff's on the other. No. <laughs> oh, we, we didn't get to fill it out. No. <laughs> you can fill this out for whatever you like. This one here. Um, well, why don't you come up and uh, yeah, and, and we'll take the picture first and then uh, and then give you a chance to talk about how you raised the money and uh, all the good work that you're doing. Now. Sure. So my name is Nicole. Yeah. And actually it was um, the grant, so through Western Communities Foundation, Western um, Financial Group has a foundation for grants and things like that for the community. And the branch manager that was there just before me, she put this in. So it has oh. to be submitted in like the end of the prior year kind of thing. So oh. they had put in a grant. You can Photoshop her in, right? It's squishy. <laughs> she doesn't need to say cheese, right? <laughs> okay, I'm going to take one on YouTube. Okay, now we have. Okay. Oh, one. Oh, 
Send it to you. No problem. Okay, great. Super. So, I'll, so I'll walk this over to the bed. We did give her one already. Um, I just need you guys to sign a media release. I have a oh, release. Oh, okay, great. We'll do that. Well, thank you, everybody. Thanks, ladies. That was great. So, um, that actually entitles you to be on our donor wall. Correct, correct it does. Yes. So, what we'll do is maybe get Tanya to talk about. Uh, the various uh, donor categories. So we're going to have a, a three-category system, and the top level is $5,000, so it's our gold category, um, which Western Financial Community Foundation will be on that donor wall recognized. It also will include information, actually a check presentation with council was one of the components too, so we can build that one also. And it'll be on our town website also under this project. Um, and there was a third item to it. It was uh, including you in an invite to our grand opening celebration when that occurs in the fall. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. Um, so it was in the picture. I just need to sign a media release. Oh. And we'll get your guys. We need an inflatable Colin for this. Maybe like a head on a stick. Councilor Needham, did you hear that? I, I I can I can hear some of the uh, the cheap shots going on, but not all that well. But I did hear my name once or twice. But but yes, if you could uh, you could Photoshop my uh, picture right in beside Byron, that would be great. We'll, we'll take a look at them. Or was standing pretty close. I don't think there's room. <laughs> we can always fit Jeff Dunham's uh, green guy on a stick in there. <laughs> So, so there's the gold category, Tanya, mm -hmm. and so there must be a silver, bronze. Silver and bronze. Is there a participation category? Yes, there is. It's <laughs> 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 a good try. <laughs> <laughs> so our silver category will be. Oh, oh well, can I witness? Yeah, I, I, what? You didn't like my Jeff Dunham joke? No. <laughs> when. Uh, That's okay. You'll get me twofold when you get back, anyway. Yeah. Well, I <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for coming, guys. Tanya, you were saying the silver, bronze, and. Other categories? So we're, the donor wall is being launched and Western Financial is, this is a great opportunity for us to sort of get the ball rolling. The set silver level will be a thousand dollar level and then we have a bronze category of 250. And then anything below that we will also acknowledge each recipient uh, both with a tax receipt and on our website. So the silver includes similar benefits to the um, the gold category and so does the bronze we include them on the website we provide an opportunity to come to council for a formal check presentation 
um, and be included in the overall donor wall. So this is a really great way to kick off our donor system and season. And we have um, a couple of companies that are paying for naming rights offers. I won't let the proverbial cat out of the bag yet uh, until they've sort of signed the agreements, but um, fundraising is moving along. Well, I heard there's someone had the name. The overall, so we have oh, okay, okay, okay. Fieldhouse, Serena, we're, we're naming all sorts of other components <laughs> in that building. So, so the ones yeah. on the wall are silver and... Uh, bronze, silver, and gold. Gold, bronze, silver, depending on how you work out. Tanya, can you speak to uh, when Rotary House was done, uh, the group uh, was able to issue receipts and you'd get a, a taxable receipt with a, a number acceptable to the federal government. Is this... Correct. Does this work for individuals yes. as well? Yes, it, it would, okay. absolutely. So we're doing anything over $20, we'll receive a tax receipt. In this particular case with Western Financial, it was actually a grant, so we won't be able to provide a tax receipt. No, with no I was thinking of if you're going to appeal to individual taxpayers. Correct, but. yes. That, that is definitely something that will be a part of that advertising. Good. So you mentioned gold. Is there a higher category? Uh, that the naming rights is the higher category. Oh. That's what we're hoping. Okay. And the town of East River, do we get? Uh, uh, the <laughs> municipal representatives will receive special recognition outside of the donor wall. Okay, very good. So yeah, there's no platinum platinum category here. I think it's an automatic that we're platinum. <laughs> uh, there's no alliteration, but the Tarpy twinning, there's some alliteration. Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm writing that down. <laughs> okay, um, now we are um, Northwest Species at Risk. That is the uh, presentation, they'll be here at 7 p.m. is what they're aiming for. Oh, I thought we had a phone call at 6 p.m. Um, yes, we do. We anticipate that we should be able to be all right. Yeah. Really? Uh, okay. Okay. <coughs> uh, uh, that takes us to bylaws, and uh, there's a request for a decision regarding bylaw 2020. Is hindsight? Exactly. Or future. Good evening, Mayor Council. Uh, tonight I'm presenting a um, bylaw number 2020, which is an update to the water and sewer rates for the 2018 budget. Uh, during the 2018 budget deliberations, Council incorporated into the budget administration recommendation that current water and sewer rates be increased uh, by four, from $4.62 to $4.98 a cubic meter. This is an increase of $0.36 cents or 7.79. This increase reflects Council's direction to move water and wastewater closer to a cost recovery operation and gradually, gradually eliminate the use of tax revenue and subsidized water, wastewater usage and infrastructure. In 2011, Town commissioned the Corvus report which reviewed the water and sewer rate structure in light of a utility full cost approach. The report took into consideration structural changes to rates that ensure equity, financial stability, and environmental stewardship. As per the Corvus model, in order to achieve the full cost rate structure, the 2018 rate would have 
to be $5.76 cents per cubic meter, which is 78 cents higher than the proposed rate. Uh, in the proposed uh, rate increase, Council recognized, the administration recognized the need to increase these rates gradually. Bylaw 2020 is a bylaw that repeals bylaw 1996 and, and bylaw 2020 if you're looking for one. Okay, all in favor? In favor. Anyone for a second reading? Mr. Ford, all in favor? In favor. And is there a motion to go to third reading? I'll move that we go to third reading. All in favor? In favor. And uh, who's going to make a motion for third reading? 
All in favor? Uh, Mr. Shamhorn's Shamhorn's favor. Uh, motion. Okay. That is passed. Thank you. Uh, that takes us to new new business. Uh, since there's no unfinished business uh, to be to be uh, dealt with, uh, the first one is a request for decision. This is an invitation to participate in the ninth edition of the Franco-Albertan flag raising ceremony. This one takes place this Friday. Is that correct? That's correct. Two o'clock in the afternoon. That's correct. And. Uh, we won't be able to get Ms. Yoon to write me a French speech. I don't believe so. She might be able... Oh, mm -hmm. she has. So we'll have to get somebody to translate, translate. Okay. into French. Yeah. Okay. I think Ms. Yoon is from the Ottawa area. You'd expect her to be bilingual. <laughs> she is not. So. <laughs> she is not. <laughs> okay. Um... So uh, I think there's a motion where they just want the uh, the mayor to designate. Um, so who who would be willing to be a designate if I can? I could, but French is going to be loud. Oh, I'll show you how. It's easy. Google Translate gives you a pronunciation. <laughs> a note of caution. Google Translate is not always correct. <laughs> it might be a combination of Franco, Anglais, something. We could always issue universal translators. Okay. So I can talk to my Francophone consultant. I'll be meeting with her tomorrow night and see whether we can hash something out. But I'm not sure if I can do it on the timeline, but I will do my best. Okay. Um, I'll move. Okay. I'll move that. Well, mayor designated. Mayor designated so to attend the flag raising ceremony and recognition of Frank Holmes on Friday, February 2nd, 2 p.m. at the Cold Catcher Bar. All in favor? All favor. And um, there's also an invitation to meet with the. the I just got to call it the Francophone trustees. That would be correct, right? Mm -hmm. That's correct. Um, and that's March 15th. I won't be able to make that. And it's a full-day session, isn't it? In, in this particular case, their, their meeting is the half day, but they're suggesting that within that half day, of there be 20 minutes that they would like attendance for that portion of the meeting. Um, they seem to be open and flexible of when that would be workable for someone else's schedule. Um, you're not, you're on holidays, correct? No, I'm at a meeting for council. <laughs> Could you be in two places at once? We tried, but. Can they wait till 3 30? Five? Yeah, five might be pushing. These are trees. 3 35. These aren't, these aren't teachers. They do. They, they don't do it. Yeah. Sure, yeah. I unfortunately am not available. Maybe Colin. Colin. You're back by then, aren't you? Is, is it the 15th? Yeah. Yes. Uh, sure, what time? We would, um, Councillor Needham, we'd set up a specific time between the school division and yourself of what would be best within that eight sure. to Yeah, so that, that's good. Uh, the 15th's fine. I, morning would be best, but uh, just drop me an email, uh, Ruth, and uh, put my name down. You bet. Yeah, this uh, being a former school trustee, you can uh, trade war stories with these 
Yeah, well, we can, we can, yeah, we can. We could, we could talk about legal cases from Saskatchewan on public school, uh, Catholic school board findings or something. Or, or we could talk about Grimshaw. And I'm, I'm sure we'll find lots to uh, fill out 20 minutes. Uh, yeah, just give me a time, Ruth, and uh, I can do March 15th. So, Your Worship, I'll move that we enable Councillor Needham to attend the March 15th. Yeah, all in favor. In favor. Um, there's a request for decision to attend the Northern Heat Fire Conference, and this is going to be held, Mr. Harris. It's a great name, by the way. Yeah. Northern Heat. <laughs> uh, so the opening ceremonies. Ceremonies will be on uh, May 4th at 8 p.m., so a few months ahead. Uh, it's an annual conference put on by the Regional Fire Chiefs Association. Uh, uh, this is our 20th conference. We'll also be inviting the Fire Commissioner, actually he's attending the Fire Commissioner for Alberta. We'll be attending, we'll also be inviting MLA and MP for this region as well. Uh, and your look, your ask is uh, for you, the worship's attendance or designate just to make a brief uh, welcoming remarks on behalf of the town peace group. Okay, we can uh, May fourth. I uh, I don't think out much past two days, so yeah. uh, we'll uh, work out a. Uh, I can't be there. We'll work out a designate. I'm on a furlough day that day and available all day. Oh. So, Mr. Mayor, I'll move that the mayor or designate attend the opening ceremonies of the Peace Regional Fire Chiefs Annual Conference to bring greetings on behalf of the town May 4th uh, at the Chateau Noel Hotel. Can I add to that motion just so that I get onto this one before anyone else notices so we can say, May the 4th be with you? <laughs> Thank you. All in favor of the motion by who? who made that? <laughs> 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 and that has been passed. That will take us uh, now to the fire department award ceremony, which will be held in when, Mr. Harris? Uh, March 23rd at the Sovich Hotel. It's just an invitation for council to attend, mayor or, or council. Uh, it's our annual award ceremony held jointly with the County Home Alliance Firefighters. Are you expecting a speech? Um, not expecting. If you want to make a few comments in support of, show support for the firefighters, it would be most welcome. Okay. So, uh, uh, maybe a motion for all, enable all counselors. Yeah. Sure. Okay, all in favor? In favor. Okay, thank you. Passed. Um, the WAD report from the RCMP is in the, uh, in the report section. Um, there, if there are any questions, please forward them to Ms. Bell and she'll forward them to the RCMP staff sergeants. Are there actually any questions on this, on this report? 
Not for the report, Your Worship, but I do have a question for Mr. Harris in regards to the award ceremony. Being that the award ceremony starts at 6 p.m., it's just a straight ceremony. It's, it's not a sit-down meal type thing. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be a, a formal event. Actually, we're on formal tunics, so it is a meal and the award ceremony. Oh, okay. So there is a meal. Okay. Is there okay. Is uh, it, 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 it's in the. Uh, the RFC, the, uh, the cost for council representation is covered by the fire department budget. The, the evening is being hosted by the, the fire department association. Okay. Oh, it's a full party. Okay. Thank you. Um, so were there any questions on the RCMP report then? Somebody might want to just mention for the record. Well, I noticed uh, one on the January to January 2014 to 2018. I think it's page 41 of the 106 in the unit or the agenda. Anyways, um, the drug trafficking, I guess it went from four last year to eight this year, so it seemed to be a significant increase even if the numbers are rather well small still but it doubled kind of thing and when numbers are that small it doesn't take much for them percents to be kind of big okay uh, well, maybe a motion to accept for information the rcmp log report all in favor? In favor. That takes us to the information section. There's a letter from the Alberta Recycling Management Authority. There's an email from Northern Alberta elected leaders um, uh, regarding caribou forestry and you. Uh, email from Purple Run Foundation uh, regarding their report on homelessness. An email again from the Northern Alberta elected leaders uh, on cannabis regulations. Um, and uh, then there is Northern Alberta Development Council Capture the North 2018 photo contest information. So there's five items there. Uh, is, is there, uh, is there uh, anything that uh, one or more counselors want to underscore on the recycling, recycling um, uh, letter? So, if it men, so we're receiving a grant, and what is this stuff? Recycled tires? If this is a, um, a black rubber, recycled tire product that we'll be placing on the um, front concrete surface at the water park. And then we put a colored overlay on top of that because black and pink is a kind of not so great. So there's color color overlay. So it's like a mat. It is a poured on um, oh. system, very similar to what we've put onto the um, tennis courts down in Lower West Peace. Mm -hmm. It's an actual poured on surface. Yeah. So it'll help with that. We have a, an issue with a bit of a dip and depression in, in the concrete. Um, and this will help build it up, plus add a, a nicer play surface for the kids, keep it cleaner, yeah, easier to maintain. 
So I think we should celebrate that green and fifteen thousand dollars to the good. So. So when uh, Ms. Yoon gets back, are you going to make a yes, absolutely. We'll have some information that we can play, put out. Tanya, just quickly, as one of the directors on the Peace Region Waste Management Board, uh, uh, good, good on you for getting some cash out of the recycling board. They've uh, they've been around for a while, and it's uh, good to see you were able to pick that up. I, I know the the couple of three demonstration projects I've seen uh, when they first were launched, they weren't uh, well. They had trouble with it, but uh, mm -hmm. this this stuff is is uh, is is pretty. Uh, is pretty good quality, and I, I've seen some pretty positive reports. So good that good on you that you guys were able to uh, to snag this. Yeah, we were quite excited because it actually deals with a significant problem we're having. So it um, it's bonus that it's environmental and um, helps with a, a quite a problem. So yeah, we're we're pleased. So Ms. Manzer, are you going to make a motion to uh, to have the communications officer? Uh, um, Make a special point of uh, advertising it on our website. This particular project. I believe I was. Okay. Yeah. All in favor? In favor. Don't want to put words in your mouth. No, you're doing quite fine. <laughs> Anyways, the other one I wanted to, Mr. Mayor, if I could, um, this um, northern development um, photo contest. Um, I think that would be well worth uh, putting on our website as well. And um, hopefully, some of our great photographers in town would think to enter. So, a motion from I think I heard a motion from Deputy Mayor Mazur to have communications uh, highlight, highlight uh, the uh, NADC Capture the North 2018 photo contest. Yes, indeed. All in favor? In favor. Um, you want to speak to any of these emails from Northern Alberta elected leaders? Um, not really, other than um, the whole cannabis uh, legislation part of thing is definitely on um, NADC's, well, Northern Alberta elected leaders' minds, and uh, hopefully we'll be getting some assistance with what we have to do in terms of our um, bylaws and policies and whatever else. So I think you can maybe give us some update on that. Uh, isn't MMSA uh, going to, uh, they're in the process right now of putting together uh, regulations regarding cannabis? Yes, that's correct. MMSA is, or, or they're looking at all the aspects to it, um, planning implications, bylaws, and they'll be providing a more detailed report in the next, do we have a time frame? Uh, we're still probably quick? about um, at least a month away for that. Uh, right now, we're just kind of uh, reacting to uh, this last uh, letter that was put out on regulations and recommendations in terms of uh, how that's going to communicate uh, our existing bylaws and in terms of setbacks and methods uh, that we have to look uh, at a land use bylaw for. Uh, just a, a note, <clears throat> I believe we sent it to the Deputy Mayor, but it's also being discussed at the upcoming AMDC meeting. There's a particular session on cannabis for municipal leaders, so. 
Phrasing. A section on can on the regulation of cannabis for the information of municipal leaders. Much better. <laughs> Sounds like a good session. <laughs> Uh, are there any uh, any other items councillors may want to stress from the information section? Underscore. So, um, acting CAO Bell, that's the title. So, have you? I'm guessing you've read the Purple Runs report. Yes, we've actually seen this report for quite some time. Okay, yeah. so I thought that I had yeah. as well. Um, I noticed that some of the questions didn't really zero in on exactly what they were hoping it was going to. I mean, I'm guessing that there's still more work for data collection in this area. Yeah. We've uh, had discussions with Purple Rung in terms of their next steps, and one of their proposals is to do a point in time count, um, which is a literally boots on the ground going out and counting uh, individuals in the community who are homeless at that time, the date that, and time frame that you choose. And we're encouraging them to utilize the um, Alberta Rural Development Network um, toolkit that they have developed. They have developed one for rural communities, a point in time, and also uh, an assessment similar to what they have provided here. So any future surveys, we're really encouraging them to utilize that um, professionally developed survey toolkit. Mm -hmm. The point in time was actually tested in Rocky Mountain House this past fall. So they did a point in time in Rocky Mountain um, in that municipality. So we would, if they're looking at a spring or early summer point in time count also, right, or maybe even fall, I, I shouldn't say time frame because they might not have set, set that yet. We're really encouraging them to utilize that um, toolkit that was developed by an agency that this is their primary um, mandate. So some of the information, you have to read through it very thoroughly and carefully um, because your actual highest risk group is uh, single parents, uh, individuals with children at risk of becoming homeless, which is... Um, significantly maybe different than what people would anticipate. It will make it very hard in the yeah. point in time count. It would not show up in a it point in time. So a point in time count is literally counting your individuals living rough in yeah. your in your community, living in the street, living living rough. So um, it, it definitely is a different process. Mm -hmm. And and some of the questions were certainly directed towards their Absolutely. own their own initiative, which is fine. It yeah. was their 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 process. But I guess I I was a little concerned about um, some of the data integrity uh, when I read it. And yeah. I kind of scratched my you know marketing degree and I was like, um, you go back to your statistics yeah, exactly. yes. and, and when yeah. uh, and and I and I know that that there was an intention to gather a lot of really good information, and I think there yeah. was some really good information in it. Um, just. Uh, you know, making sure, and, and I appreciate that you have directed them towards an existing toolkit yeah. in hopes to get some more information that that's less ambiguous. Yes. And, and they really had a lot of selection, and if you were completing it with someone, yeah. it was very complicated. Yes, it was. Um, and somewhere within the 
data report, uh, and of course at this very moment I'm having a hard time finding it. There is a, they do make a, a very good statement around their um, statistical error, and it's quite substantial. Yeah. So um, they do have sort of a disclaimer yeah. around being careful to how you read some of the data, um, as with any statistics, right? Mm -hmm. So just a note on that. It's a good start. It's a really good start. Okay, so we had a motion for one and five, so perhaps I could get a motion to accept items uh, 10.2 through to 10.4 inclusive or information. All in favor? In favor. Um, are there any notices of motion, Ms. Bell? There are none. Okay, I, um, so we have an in-camera session and we also have a Northwest Species at Risk session. You said that one will start at 7 o'clock? Yeah, she's uh, driving down from Manning and isn't able to be in attendance till 7 p.m. this evening. Right. So we're hoping that we can move the in-camera session up. Okay, to, to right now? Whenever, yes. Yeah. Okay, five minutes. And, uh, and we come back into session, and I'd like to welcome the Northwest Species at Risk Committee. Um, and uh, perhaps I'll get them to introduce themselves for their presentation. So, Mr. Um, I don't know, Lisa or Terry, which one wants to go first? Terry Angeran, I'm the reader of the County of Northern Lakes and I'm a committee member from the inception of this committee. Lisa Wardley, Deputy Reader of McKenzie County and Chair of the Northwest Species of Risk Committee. I want to, you can just go in. Yeah, okay. please. So if we're getting close to time, just, you know, give me. Well, we, we're usually not out of here till midnight, so you got five hours. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know me very well, don't give me. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> Okay, so basically we're going to um, we're going to go pretty quick. Um, this presentation is a condensed version of uh, the presentation that we gave at our open houses across the region. Uh, we did eight of them. Um, this was sort of condensed. We gave a very condensed version at uh, the Northern Elected Leaders and then I had an extremely condensed version at the um, NGC zone meeting. So this is the one we used for zone meeting. So there's a lot of information in it that we probably won't cover, but if you have any questions um, either now or after, you know, again, we're kind of always here. So basically, so then WSR committee is of course six municipalities of the Northwest. So it's the three big rurals, County of Northern Lights, the County of um, Clear Hills and Mackenzie County. And then the three urbans within our boundaries, the town of Rainbow Lake, the um, town of High Level and the town of Manning. And we kind of were formed out of a little bit of necessity and a little bit of fear. Um, when the Denhoff report came out in 2016, identifying the Caribou Ranges, um, some recommendations in there, but more importantly, 1.8 million hectares of proposed conservation land without any consultation at all whatsoever with the locals. Um, <clears throat> so of course, that Denhoff report was, again, to protect the woodland caribou. They were a threatened species federally, um, as well as provincially. Um, on the federal species at risk, Legislation. There's over 400 or 540 animals within that legislation that are also uh, listed as threatened, and we have multiple ones in our region. We have uh, gross grizzly bear. We have the wood the wood bison in two different herds: the Wood Buffalo Park and in the Hazama area. Um, what came out of I think it was November or December last year, they added a bunch more, and now the barn swallow is now on the species at risk legislation federally, which could cause us some 
place in the future. Um, so basically our mission has been to ensure that the local voice is in the perspective. Um, so we've sort of gone around uh, the region, gaining as much local knowledge as we can, putting that into a draft plan that we submitted to the province, and that's been basically our mission. They didn't listen or they didn't ask anyone who lived in the region to, when this all started, so now it's been our mission to fill the box, as they said, throughout this whole process with uh, as much information as we can gather. Um, so the introduction to the NWSAR, so again, it's uh, the six municipalities. You'll see the blue areas on that map are the actual ranges. So for our, uh, we have about 39% of our land mass is covered under Caribou Range. So in the very top corner, you have the Vistu Range, and, and then Highway 35, you can see as it goes through. So here's where my pointer comes in handy. So Highway 30. Okay, Highway 35 goes in the middle of it. Um, the Yates Herd and the Caribou Mountain Herd, and then the Chinchaga Herd is kind of down in the corner. Um, we have a, the top tip of the Red Earth Herd, but we don't really concentrate on that one. Not because it's not in our range, but the majority of that range is in the MD of Opportunity. And the, the range planners have split that out, so there's a completely different set of provincial range planners dealing with the northeast side of the province. So, you know, that would actually cause us a little bit of grief trying to deal with two different provincial departments. Just have a hard enough time dealing with the one. Um, so again, we're about 165,000 square kilometers, um, including all of those. So we're basically a little bit larger than three Atlantic provinces. And I don't have to tell you guys how large the northwest corner is. Um, some of our downfall is, is that we only have 30,000 people. And we kind of looked at that saying, okay, maybe we are the sacrificial lamb in some respects, or there's not a lot of people up there, there's not a lot of development, so this is an easy place to pick. We're very heavily resource-based, so energy, forestry, and agriculture. Um, again, we have about 39% of our region is covered under those caribou ranges. And I want to mention that probably, well, I don't mention further, but in 2016, the fall of 2016, all of those blue areas were put, as well as all the caribou areas in the province, were put under lease moratorium. So there has been lease restrictions and land restrictions on some of the land since 2012, with kind of a top, the top, uh, the, the very top of the province through that Fitzhugh and Yates area. Since 2012, 171 townships. <coughs> and then again in fall of 2016, on all the caribou ranges across the province, there was a moratorium put on on all new, this is this one, so all those areas there, pink, yellow, and a little bit of that kind of orangey color. Um, lease moratorium, so no new leases, doesn't matter what they are, energy, forestry, recreation, even municipal leases, roads, uh, gravel, mineral, um, and then some pretty, in some respects, severe lease restrictions on current leaseholders in those areas. So we've already seen a fairly uh, uncertain past um, through these lease moratoriums. So across Alberta, there is 16 populations of caribou. Uh, of course, they're listed both uh, threatened both provincially and federally. And of course, we have five of the 16 herds within our land base. Four of our herds are cross-jurisdictional. So of course, you have the Vistu, the Yates, and the Caribou Mountains are cross-jurisdictional with um, NWP. And then the Vistu and Chinchaga are cross-jurisdictional with BC. So of course, especially the Vistu one, we have three different jurisdictions within that range. So the Vistu herd, so realistically, part of our problem is that whatever we do on the Alberta side, if it doesn't sort of correspond with what NWT and BC is doing, it doesn't really make any sense for what the management techniques are going to be within that range. And the, and the Caribou Mountains is also federally. <clears throat> right, and the Caribou Mountains you'll see on there is actually it falls under Wood Buffalo National Park. So again, Wood Buffalo National Park is federal, so again, it's a completely different jurisdiction. 
So there is, in all the herds across um, Alberta, a certain percentage of the herds that are DPS collars. And the Alberta total population numbers are estimated at between 2,600 and 2,850. So out of a land mass that covers that much land on that map, there is about 2,850 animals total, estimated, because they truly don't know how many caribou are out there. So of course, this isn't just an Alberta thing. This is, of course, a federal thing. So in 2012, the federal government released their caribou woodland strategy. And their objective, and this is why it's a little bit difficult, but the recovery goal for boreal caribou is to achieve self-sustaining local populations in all boreal caribou ranges throughout their current distribution in Canada to the extent possible. And you can see that those are all the ranges across Canada. Um, the green is likely to uh, be self-sustaining all the way down to the red being very unlikely. And you'll see there that there's some discrepancies right off the get-go that everybody sees, like a five-year-old, that we have red herds in Alberta that are cross-jurisdictional with, say, the territories, and on the ter as soon as it crosses the border, the territory side is likely to be self-sustaining, and on the Alberta side, it's not. Or even in BC and Saskatchewan, it's very likely, or, you know, kind of likely, but not in Alberta. Part of the problem or part of the issue that we've seen um, digging down into this is the amount of data and the amount of research that has been done in Alberta is far superior to every other province in Canada. So we've actually maybe painted ourselves into a corner that we've actually studied the caribou to the point where if you look at Saskatchewan, that big white area across Saskatchewan, it's like not enough data. They pretty much don't know what's up there. So again, it's a federal issue. All provinces and territories across Canada are required to submit caribou range plans to the federal government. It's just a matter of how the provinces are actually, provinces and territories are actually um, sort of going about that. So the, again, in the federal strategy, they list the primary indicator of success is the disturbance threshold of each range being greater than 65% undisturbed habitat. So if you look at, can you guys see all that or is it just cut off on my? Okay, so if you look at the graph on the right, you'll actually see those are all of the ranges in Alberta. The Caribou Mountains, which is the very top one, and I wanna note that that herd, or that range is already about 57% protected through Wood Buffalo National Park and the Caribou Wildland Park. So that has zero um, activity or just you know activity in it right currently, and you see the difference of the orange bar and the green bar to where the goal should be. So realistically, the goal of 65% uh, undisturbed habitat, the way they actually list disturbance or define disturbance, is going to be near impossible in any of our ranges. Even if 100% of the range was under a parkland designation, we would still be a long way from that 65% undisturbed habitat with the way they actually calculate disturbance. So the committee and our region, we feel that the primary indicator of success should be the population. So the population should be moving in an upward direction. So if you had you know, a stable or declining caribou population, if you can get that to actually increase, that should be the success. If it's truly about caribou, then it, it should be about the increasing of the herd, which is not what it's listed in the federal plan. So again, the, uh, this is our current parks, and this is why we're so against parks. So this is a real mess of a map, but in a nutshell, anything that has color um, without not looking at the caribou areas, but anything that has color, whether it be green, red, or that big black area, and I gotta apologize because Clear Hills isn't actually kind of listed <coughs> on the map because that's the lower or the upper peace region, but you take all of those, all of those colored areas on that map, including Wood Buffalo National Park, and we have 52,000 square kilometers of protected and notated land already in our region. 
So that's basically the size of Nova Scotia. So we already have an Atlantic province full of landmass that's already either protected under a park status or has some sort of protected notation like the grizzly bear areas or the ungulate areas or that kind of thing. Um, that 30, and that's basically 31% of our landmass. That 31% does not include the 1.8 million hectares of protected land that was listed in the Den Haag report, which are, so you see it's easier, looks easier here, but you see that F20 in the very top corner and then F10 and P8, that's the 1.8 million hectares that they've actually allocated for protected or future conservation area. And what those are is it's very easily drawn on the map because those are unallocated forest management units. So they're not allocated to any mill or any forestry company. They're just, um, they have timber cell or timber uh, permitting and that kind of thing in them, but they're not actually allocated. So it was an easy way to, uh, I guess, work that out. So again, we mentioned about the current moratorium and all of our caribou ranges across the province. Um, in our area, forestry and oil and gas are one of our two biggest uh, regional industries. So on this map, you'll see the red is all of the um, forest management areas that are under agreement with a mill of one type or another, whether it be DMA, DMI or West Fraser or whoever. So the red is actually already allocated to some mill. The green is future expansion area for forestry. So those are unallocated forest management areas. And you can see in that very top corner, the green, and then kind of down where that P8 was, if you remember, and then kind of over by Wood Buffalo National Park, which is the big white, those three areas they picked out as proposed conservation areas because they're not allocated to a mill. But within those, and if again you remember where the caribou ranges were, 38% of the forestry is active within those caribou ranges. So it's not just about the protected areas in the parks, it's actually about the restrictions that are could be coming down the pipe in those actual caribou ranges completely. So out of those 38%, um, just over 5.5 million meters cube is the allowable cut in those areas, which equates to about a billion dollars of annual revenue and 650 full-time equivalent jobs just in our region alone. And that doesn't necessarily include DMI, right? I don't think I, I, I don't think that actually includes jobs directly at DMI. So again, so that's sort of a forestry snapshot. Um, so of course, the uh, oil and gas is the next one. Um, within our ranges, within our um, area, we have about two point nine billion dollars of established today proven resources, so they know they're there. They know what they Please are. Please press any key on your touchtone key. And we have um, approximately $90 billion worth of um, estimated future development. So basically, if tech one technology changes and that kind of thing, similar to, you know, the oil was on the ground, they couldn't get it out, and then they, you know, they developed fracking. And they can actually take out another, you know, 10 or 15%. Um, you know, CO2 and uh, with enhanced oil recovery, you know, can maybe pull another 10% out. So as the technology changes and then develops, that $90 billion will be able to be developed. Um, they also don't include other things like geothermal or uh, mineral opportunities or gravel or anything like that. So basically those three maps on that side, I don't know if it's a little bit hard to read, if they've got color on them, there's some sort of resource in the ground at some different level. So again, our northern pipeline infrastructure and why this is important, you see on the very top northwest corners, okay, orange is gas, Purple is oil, gray is condensate, and the green is vapor pressure products. Not sure why it's called that, but you see in the very northwest corner, there's that green line that comes in from the territories. Everyone sees that? Okay, that is the only export line of the NWT. That is their only pipeline that's bringing all of oil and gas products out of the NWT and shipping to market. 
they don't have any other pipeline that goes through Beaufort or anything else at this time. So if you also remember where that Fishkey Lake range was, that main supply line for the NWT comes right through that range. And if you look at that also, you look, you know, sort of the down south, the pipeline infrastructure down south, compared to the pipeline infrastructure sort of Peace River North, um, you know, we don't really have a lot in comparison. Just jump in here when I have a thing. So, okay. <laughs> so the green line, sorry, green, the pipeline coming out of the NWP is already in place. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that has been, um, I can't remember, probably 20 years or whatever. They had an issue. It hasn't been in production. I think they, I don't think it's quite back in, but they had a pipeline break in the NWT, so they actually just got approval to go under the Mackenzie. Um, so they're actually working on that this winter, fixing that. That. So they're basically stockpiling in Norman Wells right now, waiting for that line to be picked, and they're actually trucking a lot of it um, into Alberta as well. This map shows the region. Um, basically, this map shows where, and of course, I don't have to explain to you guys where rural assessment comes from. Um, our assessment comes from, of course, linear machinery and equipment taxes. Um, that map shows um, where the assessment for the three municipalities actually is. If it's orange um, or red, orange or yellow, it's sort of a, a more um, condensed or um, active area. And then the lighter, the darker green, then the lighter green goes down to kind of less. So again, there's um, leaf moratorium within some of those very north ranges since 2012. And if you overlay where the orange kind of shaded lines are, that has been the least moratorium since the fall of 2016. So if you look at why the three, especially the three big rurals, um, ending our towns, but the three big rurals are so concerned about this. Caribou Range pretty much covers where our, where we get our revenue and where we get our assessment. And then of course that trickles down to everything else, right? So the impact of those to the municipalities. Um, so again, if you look, so basically what we did, uh, so in the range completely, um, in the Chichaga Range right at the top, so let's just do Mackenzie County for a minute. Um, so Mackenzie County has assessment within all of the ranges. Um, there is no assessment out of the Caribou Mountain Range right now. There is no, no um, pipelines or infrastructure at all. So the total assessment is at 387 million plus the mill rate. So our annual budget, uh, or our, the budget coming out of those ranges is 4.6 million. So our annual budget is about $30 million a year. So the total impact of what would be removed out of those areas is about $14.98 million, or 14.98%. And basically when we work that out, that is our complete uh, parks and rec budget plus half of our planning department. We had worked that out. County Northern Lights um, is set to take a hit of about 18.75% and the County of Clear Hills is 25%. I see you doing that, but our budget, we have no money left for capital either. I got parks and rec, so you just hit home. <laughs> it is, and we have all of our, all of our parks and rec in Mackenzie County is actually um, nonprofit groups. We have no parks and rec direct staff. Um, so again, this is a huge hit for, for municipalities. And again, this is just, just the municipal business. revenue. This does not have anything to do with how many individual wow. companies or jobs or, or you know, businesses, you know, who can't pay their taxes. So that is why right there, those percentages are why the municipalities got involved kind of right away quick. Um, so this kind of goes through just the geothermal stuff. So this is the geothermal. We can talk about sort of future possibilities and this is sort of one of them. And again, you kind of got to remember where those ranges are when I talk about this. So if you look at the map on the, on the left, whatever side you guys have the left, um, 
So basically geothermal is using this one, this geothermal program is using existing infrastructure and existing wells. So it's already existing there, the footprint's already there. Um, there is sort of, you know, the wells have either been watered off or whatever else the deal is, they're not top producing wells. So they've looked at that and to say, okay, how can we actually use the ground temperature to pull out and produce heat? There is a similar program going on right now in Hinton, but that's actually producing, um, or sorry, that's producing heat, this one's producing power. So that one's producing heat. So they're actually using existing wells and they're going to be pumping through heat out of those existing wells into municipal buildings in the, in the town of Hinton. This one is actually for power production. So using existing wells with produced water, um, pumping it into formation, heating it up, bringing it back out and running it through a power generation facility to produce power. So the darker the orange um, or the darker the red, right down to the pink is the highest temperature um, well in the province. So if you look at the one on the left, you have kind of three areas, one, two, three, and four have shown up to be at a five kilometer well depth. Um, the hottest, basically the hottest well bores on the province at a five kilometer depth. Um, again, area one and two is Bishju range is directly over one and the Chinchaga range is directly over range number two on here. You go to a, and of course the Hinton area is at that five kilometer depth. If you move that into a two kilometer depth, so a much shallower well, which is a lot less infrastructure to deal with, you look again at the numbers and the pink, um, Bishju range and the Chinchaga range in that sort of very northwest corner is the hottest wells, highest temperature wells in the province at a two kilometer depth. But because of they said transmission and all the rest of it, um, they also probably couldn't get leases because it was past 2016. They went down to that number four area and they're actually doing a test project down there south of Edmonton on geothermal using existing infrastructure. So again, northwest corner of the province, which you know has a trickle down effect to you know kind of East River North, is again at a disadvantage for infrastructure and projects. The G7G rail, of course, this is my other hat that I was wearing. Um, this is a pretty exciting project. Of course, we have NTAB, which is sort of a regional group between Preda and Ready, and then we sort of, that's a whole acronym issue, but um, so the Northern <laughs> Transportation Advisory Bureau, and of course, Carolyn Kalababa is the chair of that. Um, and uh, so this is actually sort of gaining speed in the last couple months. And if you look at the main, I guess, two, um, that red line that kind of comes down from um, Alaska to Fort McMurray. The red line is sort of was their first primary route. So it kind of comes from Fort Nelson through to Rainbow Lake and then down across to Fort um, McMurray. Um, the Northern BC is actually not um, supportive of this project. So if you actually look at that alternate route around Fort Nelson First Nation, um, that is the right now the um, sort of top route that they're looking at. And if you remember where that green line on the map was that follows that Norman Wells pipeline, which is again, is existing infrastructure, existing right away. It's um, set to come down through that Norman Wells line. And again, if you remember where the Vistu Lake range is, it follows right over top of that. Even if it goes through as the red line, again, the Caribou or the Chinchaga range, again, is right over top of that. Um, the NWT is um, in support of the G7G rail. They actually want to push it even further into the NWT because they're actually looking at reopening the Pine Point mine and putting, uh, there's a, right now there's a partnership program going on with a pellet plant in that enterprise. So there's kind of a, some exciting things happening on the NWT side as well that could make this um, rail line a sort of quicker possibility. But again, with caribou ranges and the moratoriums and all the rest of it, again, it shuts down possible future development for the Northwest. So, <clears throat> Dr. Lockwood. Okay. So what our committee's done so far, um, 
we talked to the locals. So we had many open houses starting a year ago where we, we, we uh, invited stakeholders, industries, forestry, oil, gas, uh, First Nations contractors. We were representing the people who don't have a voice. Like industry, they're doing a pretty good job on their own making deals with, uh, with the range planners, try to look after their own interests, but nobody was looking out for the, the moms and pops operation, so we, we met with these people. We met, we were, we've been to Ottawa twice. We had countless meetings with ministers, with deputy ministers, with the bureaucrats, the range planners. Um, I wasn't part of it, but the Kenji County folks went up to Yellow Knife, met with MWT a year ago, a little over a year ago now. That one representative was over to Northeast BC with Fort Nelson, I believe, and met with them over there. We've been pounding the pavement a lot in the last year and a half, and we brought resolutions forward to our our rural body, AMDC, which I think you all are familiar with. And they, in the spring, in the fall of 2016, and, the, and last spring and last fall again, three different times, we brought resolutions, and they all passed with high majorities and regarding species at risk land use planning and uh, inter-jurisdictional that Lisa talked about before, trying to get some collaboration with, with the other provinces and territories and uh, with Buffalo Park. Uh, AUMA, our, our urban members took resolutions there. Elaine, you probably were there and seen those. They, they again passed with, uh, with high majorities. The Alberta Chamber of Commerce, they passed a res resolution at their provincial conference regarding the social impact, social economic impact of the species at risk. Lisa was a, a guest speaker at the Alberta Forest Products Association Convention last fall in Jasper, uh, talking about what our committee has done for our region. We've had multiple news releases, interviews, articles, uh, collaboration with the, the, the Saskatchewan Municipal Association, and speaking of news releases, like we've, we've launched a lot of stuff on social media. So if you, if you follow Facebook, uh, like our page there, there's some good videos just went up today again. One went out last week, and we're hoping to launch another one maybe later this week. We've got a 20 minute documentary. Uh, so, either our website or our social media, you can get access to all that. And so, we work with all the information that we gathered from our stakeholders' meetings that we had throughout the north. We had them in Rainbow, Zama, Manning, uh, the high level. So, those were the things that I'm talking about. With the very, first, the, very first the very first ones we had, we, we met with all the different groups. The majority of them were in the high level area. So we, we drafted a, a document, a, a recommendations for population recovery in June, and, and then we kind of tweaked it over the summer, and then we submitted our final report in September last fall. And then things kind of went quiet after we submitted that. We never really heard much until the government released their, their draft plan on December 17th, I think it was. So I touched on the next page. Um, okay, we're, we're we're showcasing these videos. We had a we had a we hired a video uh, crew to come around and they followed us around the north and took some awesome footage and put together some uh, some awesome videos. So one that's been released and a longer one coming out shortly. And plus they also did the videoing when we had a uh, another group had a rally at the legislature last week and they invited us to come and speak. So that's on our Facebook as well. But after we gathered all this information up, did the video, then we, we went back again and did our roadshow, similar to what we're doing tonight, only it was a two-hour version. We did eight open houses. 
So we started in Zama and then did one in Rainbow Lake, Lacrete, High Level, Manning, and Eureka River. And then there was still, uh, we got calls to do more. So Paddle Prairie, maybe Settlement, we went back there and did one. And then Fort Vermillion, they wanted one, so we went back to Fort Vermillion and did another one. Plus the one we did at the zone meeting, AMBC, and, and now here tonight, along with one of the Northern Leaders, Northern Alberta elected leaders as well, kind of a real brief one. So yeah, and, and just gotta point out too, the ones, I think starting in Zama wasn't quite so bad, but as we worked our way south, I mean, the, the temperatures were brutal. In Manning, the night we had at Manning, you know, everybody's thermometers were showing minus 43, and we still managed to fill all the halls. Like there was, I think it, it would have been minus 10, we would have probably had twice as many people come out. So but in total, we had just over 600 people yeah. um, at those eight open houses. So again, you know, even from our planning staff, if you guys have hold you know, planning open houses, we get like two, you know, <laughs> you know, it was it kind of, at every single one, we had to go find more chairs yeah. because it was, yeah. it was amazing how many people were actually engaged. And then those, to those people told two people and so then the next thing we did in our communication plan is we, uh, we initiated a petition. And what we're petitioning is, uh, we're not petitioning anything about caribou. There's two items on there. One is we want a more uh, comprehensive uh, social economic study. And the other one is around land use farming. We're just trying to petition the, the government to, to slow down on this range plan until they, they you want to, I don't know if you want to read it or not. So yeah, cover social economic and, and uh, the, the, the land use planning part of it, right? That, that we don't want yeah. per, more permanent conservation areas. Because part of what the province came out with is that they said, okay, well, we'll do a socioeconomic impact study on the province. Um, the RFP came out last fall, yeah. right? Yeah. And we yes. actually, NWSAR actually looked at it to see maybe we should actually be bidding on it and actually do it for the province so that we made sure it was done right. Because we actually probably already had it done. Because <laughs> we did it for a lot of ours. Yeah. Um, we actually looked at the RFP and it is extremely high level. Um, if you know anything about consultants, they put a $250,000 budget in play to do a socioeconomic impact study on what caribou is going to uh, cost municipalities or the province. I think it's, I think I don't, I don't think it gets to the municipality level, it's just the province. Yeah. So part of the, the statement or what they call the prayer statement in the petition is that uh, complete a full socioeconomic assessment for the region, includes financial, recreational, and traditional impacts to communities, businesses, and citizens as it relates to caribou range planning. And that's what we need to know. We need to know how it's going to affect, you know, that mom and pop business that lives on the corner or that senior that won't be able to sell their place um, because of the property values of this tank. So that's to the level that we need them to, uh, to create that or to complete that socioeconomic impact study before the range plans are actually completed. So this is a petition we started that's got very good intake and the reason you're probably not seeing it around T-Service much is we kind of, even though I think your postal code is T8S here, um, we, we limited it to T-O-H and T-8S, but the more municipalities, more towns that you engage in a petition, then your percentage of the population is also required. So uh, uh, I, I mean, they are getting trickled into, I know Grimshaw has a couple now and probably some T-Server folks have signed them too. So we may have to scrutinize them when we go to submit it just to make sure that we're not shooting ourselves in the foot by putting and just as a side note of that we talked to the leader of the opposition when he was in peace over here last week for the fundraiser and uh, asked him if he would table this petition in the house and he said he would be glad to do that for us so he, he took, he'll take great honor in doing that 
We're still maintaining a Facebook page. We have a website that has all the information we've given you, and then some is on that website, and I encourage you to look at it. It's very well done. And Twitter, for those of you that are into Twitter. So then, about two weeks ago, the province uh, came up with these multi-stakeholder meetings, which were invitation-only, two people per group, so uh, municipalities, urban and rural, uh, forestry, oil, gas, first nations, were all invited to Edmonton to meet with the uh, Deputy Minister, or the range planners, I guess, the, the top level bureaucrats to meet with. And Lisa can touch that because she got the honor of going to represent the rural municipalities and kind of went off the tracks in a hurry. Second Tom. So, what, what happened on that one was that, okay, so they were going to do these multi stakeholder meetings. And this is one of the things we've been sort of fighting with right from the start is they seem to be doing all of their consultations in silos. So, they meet with forestry, and then they meet with oil and gas, and then they meet with First Nations, and then they meet with, you know, this group over here. And a year ago, or just over a year ago, Jonathan Wilkinson, who is the um, uh, parliamentary secretary to Minister McKenna, was the was in Edmonton. And the first time we actually got to have the feds and the province in the room at the same time, so they couldn't be doing a whole pile of this. But again, it was they had a forestry table and they had an oil and gas table, and no one was able to intermingle. So we were actually pretty excited that they were actually going to do these the two-day big workshop to try and get down to the details. So it was all association-based. So A and B and C, they have three different tables. So of course, again, three different areas of the province has been split up. So the central, so Smoky Yellow Pass, so south of that sort of Grand Prairie, Grand Cache area, northeast and northwest. So A and B and C was allowed six representatives. A U M A was allowed six representatives. FPAC or IFPA, the forestry guys were allowed six. Tria, CAP, like so they went association-based. Two per region, right? Yeah, and they were allowed two per table. So you can pick two for this one, two for that one. So of course. We said, okay, well, you know, it took us a week um, to actually get them to say, well, no, we're not extending the invitation to the NWSAR, even though you guys have been pounding the pavement for a year and a half. You have to go through your association. So we beat up Tom Burton, and uh, Byron and I got um, onto the Northwest SAR, and then the mayor of high level, uh, Crystal McAteer, got into AUMA. I'm not sure who the rest of the AUMA um, delegations were there for the rest of them. Um, but we did have some <coughs> municipal representation, at least at all of the tables. Um, they had an outside agency that came in and did the um, facilitating. Um, it sort of started out okay, and then it, um, what did Crystal call it? I think she dubbed it the bloodbath, the two-day bloodbath in Edmonton. It didn't go very well at all. Um, I'm not sure what they expected. They probably didn't expect that. Um, it was very, there, it wasn't a lot of, sort of conducive dialogue to actually getting right down to, you know, the details of the plan that came out. Um, so there's a follow-up session in March. We'll, we'll get beat up again, but um, we'll see how that goes, but I'm not real, yeah. I don't know, I'm still well, reeling well, from... We're hoping that they learned from last Yeah, we're hoping that they got a... Because they had evaluation sheets at the end of, I don't think they got anything above one star, probably. So. It turned out to be, you kind of had one, like, polar opposites. There was two groups of polar opposites. And um, I shouldn't even say that. There was one group of polar up or a polar sort of side here, and then everyone else in the middle wanted to start, you know, start talking about okay, what's this actually going to mean? How this is actually going to work? And that included all of the industry and everything else. And this group here was silenced by this very loud minority group over here, and it just sort of stalled. So hopefully they fix that for, for the next one. Yeah. So then we're coming out. This will get to us, and we're running out of time. But with the pro postcard postcard program, so we're printing out postcards to hand out to the residents that they can submit to their elected people. Um, so the province is having six of these uh, information sessions, or 
they're calling it uh, to try to gather more input for their final plan. So we started out last Tuesday with one in White Court, which we attended, and then uh, the following Thursday they had one in Edmonton, we attended, and then tomorrow night there's one in Cold Lake, which we're not going to attend because we all have meetings tomorrow. And then Thursday of this week there's one in Fort McMurray, which we're going to attend. And then March 6th, is, which is a Tuesday of the next week, will be one in High Level, which is one we're really trying to drum up a lot of people that are trying to hit that one. We're, we have some, I don't know if we passed out the newsletter flyer mm -hmm. or not, but. Yeah, this one is yeah. So anyway, we're, we're going to have a couple of charter buses, one coming out of the creek, one coming out of Hines Creek, and then working its way to High Level. And, and then the last one will be in Grand Prairie on that Thursday of that week. So I guess what they're hoping is from these six meetings, that they're going to get enough feedback that they can put the final touches on their on their plan. And uh, Byron uh, from Mackenzie County, uh, who's part, been a strong part of our committee, he presented to the Fish and Game Association last week at their annual conference. I never really got any feedback how that went, but uh, he was there. And then the Alberta Forest Alliance, which is a group similar to ours, kind of a grassroots group out of White Court, but they're, they're looking at forestry interests only. They're not I mean, they mentioned oil and gas, but they had a rally at the legislature last Tuesday, just prior to the open house, and uh, that's where they asked Lisa to come. I think they had a, they had a over 200 people showed up there. It was very well. I mean, there was uh, no no governing MLAs came out to address or anything like that. So it was really nothing came out of it. And the media was there, so it was uh, you know, got a little bit of footage on the media. There was a pretty strong contingent from um, Obuche Brothers. They basically shut down some of their operations in Carpool. So they were there in full force, which yeah. was good. Um, there was a crew that came out of La Creek. Um, so there was a, a lot of, it wasn't just White Court that was holding all the signs up and that kind of thing. There was a lot from actual Northwest. So, and they were loud, which was good. Yeah, they had like, uh, they had a proper outfitter from up north and brought some First Nations people with them. And it was good. So then the next, Page or slide, we get into our uh, a summary of our challenges, but I don't think we'll go over them because they're, they're pretty detailed. I don't know if you want to touch on any in particular, but I guess we, like we, come up, we come up with 10 challenges, yeah. right? Yeah. And recommendations. So I'll let you pick the ones you So basically, there. the big one, um, and that you know, again, with when all of a sudden you get hit with 1.8 million hectares of protected parkland in your backyard without anyone, like a, you know, courtesy phone call or anything, um, the big overarching recommendation has been all the way through all of our um, sort of the last year and a half has been no additional permanent conservation areas. We don't have any luck with the ones we have now. Um, in the Caribou Mountain herd, um, which is 57% protected between Wood Buffalo National Park and the Caribou Wildland Park is a declining um, herd. So just because you draw a line on a map and call it a park, doesn't mean you're actually going to assist in caribou population recovery. In the Yates herd, um, actually, is the one that the highway goes through and we have a fairly substantial oil and gas um, operation within that one. That one's actually stable. So it has no protected land in it. So again, it depends on a bunch of different factors and a bunch of different strategies and what we feel is, you know, protected land as a range plan is not actually conducive. So you can read through kind of the challenges and again on our website, these challenges are broke out for like multi pages. So this is a very down and dirty version. Um, so if you don't have any questions, feel free. I guess the one big one too is be the land management. We feel that if you're talking 1.8 million hectares or you're talking species, uh, management on the land base that needs to be put into the land use framework <coughs> and you guys probably know too you know the lower and upper piece frame land use frameworks have been <coughs> next in the queue we've been hearing that for three years that you know the land use frameworks are coming to your area next and so what we've been told throughout this process is that whatever happens with caribou range planning will just be integrated into the land use framework 
So that was one of the resolutions we took to our, our, our convention was, <coughs> is, uh, let's put the land use framework first, and this Cable Ridge planning could become part of it, right, rather than having multiple layers of land management that basically you'll have 100% protected land if you, everybody gets their wish. Mm -hmm. So, and, and the minister, we sat with the minister at high level, she sat at the table with us, and we asked her to put land use planning, and oh, I'd love to do land use planning, she said, but I just don't have resources or budget for it, she said, and again, she said, it's coming, it's coming, but you know, what, what does that mean, right? So, and was it two weeks ago we were sitting at zone meeting here, so AMDC zone meeting and Darcy Beach and the rest of the AT staff were there, and they were talking about all these different plans. So they already have draft um, grizzly bear plans that they're working on. They already are looking at, what, there's nine kinds of fish now mm -hmm. that are on some sort of radar somewhere about shutting down angling and uh, fishing restrictions. So again, you have a bunch of different departments working on a bunch of different Sort of files that all range that all put into this land management and land use framework if they actually put some resources to land use framework we might actually get somewhere so that was sort of one of our challenges the next big one for us is lack of data and it doesn't matter you know like i mentioned right at the get-go is alberta sort of kicked themselves in the foot by the amount of um, uh, research that they've done on caribou the problem is is that the province actually isn't accepting or acknowledging a lot of that if it's if the data or the programs were done by oil and gas or by forestry, they view that as biased. So they're not actually looking at it. So unless you are a you know biologist with four letters behind your name or it's peer reviewed or you're an employee of the province, you know, there isn't really a lot of other additional data that they're looking at, which we feel is a severe lack. Um, you know, because what they're using and what's actually on the landscape and what's actually what it actually looks like are two completely different things. And some of the data that they're coming out with completely contradicts, not even a little bit, but completely contradicts some of the other data that's coming out of CNRL and Synovus and TOCO and even some of the free like FRI research and that kind of thing. I, so, always, I always use the example that, um, like they say, Chichaga range is 95 or 96% of the search. And I've worked out in that area a good part of my life and flown over it. And so you fly over the area and look at it and say, this is 95% disturbed. I mean, you, if you were an environmentalist living in Toronto and you said it was 95% disturbed, and you have this vision of, of destruction out there, you know, everything ripped up, and then you go out there and there's a... Like downtown Edmonton, you mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Somebody might see an oil lease over there with a line leading to it and a, and a road and maybe a cut block over there, but I mean, the majority of it is still undisturbed, right? So, I mean, like Lisa said, there's a lot of, a lot of, we, we got to get this data right and, and maybe even go take it to a policy level, and, and, which would be a federal strategy, which is, but um, it, it, it's so skewed right now that it, that's. Same thing again, you said that they said the Kinshaga area is 90. Well, actually, I have a map. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay. I'm looking at it, actually. But Are you? Yeah. Yeah. I'll, we'll explain how they come up. That's one of our challenges. Okay. Um, so, challenge three is the disease by the Buffalo National Park. It's, well, I don't know if you guys know, that was the, I guess, province's first kick at the cat to sweep these at risk. Um, back in the early 20s, they actually took diseased bison um, from down south around that uh, Wainwright area that had diseases, but they were going to call the herd of about 5,000 and uh, public outcry, and that kind of makes me laugh, like what kind of public outcry can get organized in the 1920s without like, what? Telegraph was just written out. <laughs> but anyways, so they said, no, we're not going to call the herd, so they put them on barges and sent them to you know the north corner and the feds created wood buffalo national park 
And so they in integrated um, 5,000 plains disease bison in with a 50,000 wood bison herd. We now have a hybrid herd up there that has, uh, that's down to about that 5,000 or 5,000 animal mark and they are diseased with tuberculosis and brucellosis. So of course they've been causing issues for us for a long time. Um, the farmers are, uh, again, you know, we have a bunch of different groups that said, okay, if we're going to do anything with protected species, we need to fix that blight on the landscape and figure out what the heck we're gonna do. Um, that rolls into, we have a clean bison herd. And again, federally, caribou and wood bison are protected under the same, they're both listed as threatened federally. So we have a Hayzama bison herd on sort of the Zama side of the Northwest range, and which is a clean herd that was reintroduced by the Denica. And the plan was, was to reintegrate them, let that herd expand, deal with this disease herd over here, and eventually this clean herd would repopulate the whole north with you know, disease-free bison. Okay, well now that didn't work because they haven't dealt with LDs over here, and now we're tagging out over half the herd in a legal hunt of a threatened species to protect them from the disease species. So nothing really makes sense in that whole challenge there. Uh, challenge four is restricted for management area. So basically that came out of our local trappers. We held um, a lot of conversations with the Trappers Association and the Alberta Association, and that right there is you know increasing tra trap checks, times, um, using our local trappers and outfitters for targeted um, alternate um, or predator management areas. Um, again, that's a whole two or three page within there. There's a lot of details behind that, but that's again, the locals working on the land offering solutions that aren't um, you know, park-based. Challenge five is the alternate prey species management. Okay, now I gotta clarify, because the province classifies alternate prey management, okay, so they have a, I think they have a graph later on, but um, in order to have caribou, so increased caribou populations, you need to remove all of the predators off the landscape. So you need to take out the wolves, cougars, the bears, and everything else that eats the caribou. Then you need to take out the alternate prey so that the, or that the predators don't move back in and that you know, they don't actually compete with the caribou. So that's all the elk, the moose, the deer. And then you remove the human footprints out of there and hopefully you'll have an increase in caribou management. Not making that up, that's actually in their plan. So their alternate prey species management in some of the areas is actually to go in and remove elk, deer, and moose out of the ranges. And the predators. And the predators. But this alternate prey on our challenge is we're saying we need to fix the alternate prey being the wood buffalo bison, the disease herd. Um, ANESCO came out with a report a year ago or whenever it was um, on Wood Buffalo National Park, which they've dubbed one of the most unhealthy ecosystems in the Northern Hemisphere. And they've actually stated that the wolves come out of Wood Buffalo National Park because they've basically adapted to their prey, which is disease bison, are actually, they've dubbed them as super wolves. And when we were at the Alberta Trappers Association um, rendezvous in July in high level, we had trappers there that have a trap right adjacent to Wood Buffalo National Park. And they soft stuffed, which we've never seen a soft, soft stuffed animal. It's amazing, it's like a really big teddy bear, but they soft stuffed wolves coming out of Wood Buffalo National Park. And then one's kind of around that, you know, Tompkins Landing, Blue Hills area. And the ones coming out of Wood Buffalo National Park, and like they said, they kind of aged them. So they're, you know, they're both, they were both male, they're both about the same age. And the one coming out of Wood Buffalo National Park is double the size of the other one. So UNESCO has actually kind of dubbed them. So you think about that, do caribou actually stand a chance when that's the predator that happens to be hunting them because they've adapted to you know, living off of disease bison. So that's our alternate prey. One quick question, you're sort of on the first slide, and I'm a little confused as to how this was It was destroyed in 2009. 
not true. Why was it displaced? It's not that long. No, it was um, it was it was taken off the map by an avalanche. It was a small, small, small order. <laughs> they had like five or nine owls. Yeah, it was supposed to be a dozen, but an avalanche came and wiped them off. So. Which I want to actually point out that it was in an area that actually doesn't allow avalanche control <laughs> because of because of protected land. I'm not sure. Maybe if they would have allowed avalanche control in that area, they might not have wiped over. But it was it was taken out by an avalanche. So again, protected but what you know protected parkland doesn't all of a sudden state that you know the animals are going to thrive. I just didn't understand why there would be these destroyed. By yeah. That it was destroyed by avalanche. I think we normally touch on that when we talk. Um, so a couple of the other challenges, the reduced economic certainty, and again, we have all of those moratoriums. We need to get to a point where we actually start removing those moratoriums. So, you know, bring back some certainty to industry, and that's all industry, even municipalities being able to get leases within those areas. Uh, the regional growth, that sort of goes back into the shared access, targeted restoration areas, picking out areas that are actual critical for, for caribou, whether it be calving grounds or, you know, food source, that kind of thing, and then targeting resources to those areas because if you actually look at the landmass across the province there's no way that there's enough money to do all the restoration in all those ranges. Challenge 8 is a big one, disturbance, and it's based on you know sort of the boots on the ground. Um, the way that the province or the way that the feds state is disturbance. So anything within the last 40 years. So if there was a legacy um, even a survey line. So the survey lines that went across you know that's just to map it. So back in the 60s. So if there's that survey line or seismic line or cut line or road or whatever anywhere in the last 40 years that's a disturbance on the landscape then they add 500 meters on either side of that so a kilometer wide and then they add that all up and that's a disturbance so then in some ranges where they actually those cut lines cross or crosses with a cut block or whatever else there's actually some of their their numbers that it's over a hundred percent disturbed like I don't I have grade 12 but I'm pretty sure you can't get to more than a hundred percent but they've figured out a way to be able to do that. So our thing is, what's a disturbance? How long is it should be a disturbance? Um, what's the buffer zones on the disturbance? Should fire disturbance be treated the same way as Highway 35? Um, even fire mapping. So in North of Zama in 2012, am I good for time? Oh yeah. Okay. Um, just do the. Okay. So in 2012, North of Zama, we were actually evacuated because of a forest fire with 600,000 hectares, which is massive. So, but on that fire, they basically, when the province fire maps, they take a fire and then they outline it, the hot zone all the way around it, and that's fire disturbance. Everything within, Everything within those boundaries. Well, there's huge areas within that 600,000 hectares that the fire never touched. You know, like probably the size of Edmonton. But of course, according to them, the way they map the fire, that's all disturbed. And they list fire disturbance as the same um, rating as Highway 35. So then they add the buffer zone all the way around it. Shouldn't that be the same as Avalanche? Probably, <laughs> I'm not sure how they disturb <laughs> <laughs> So one of our thing, one of our big pushes, and there's conflicting data on is fire should fire be classified as a disturbance at all? Is it you know sort of part of the natural you know rejuvenation of the forest? You know, should we actually be putting them out? Should we not be? You know, however that works. The biologists seem to think that caribou need old growth forest yeah. to live in, right? Right. So their big thing is that's why they've stated fire is a disturbance because caribou don't go where there's a fire. Well, the front page of our report actually, we flew over the caribou mountain. There's two stories. Flew over the caribou mountain wildland or wildland area, and there was a. So basically, we walked out and took a picture of a cow and a calf caribou in the middle of a swamp 
surrounded by probably a five-year-old burn for as far as the eye can see, basically, on the chopper. So and that's the picture we use for the front of our report. They're homeless, Carol. They were homeless, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were just homeless, by industrial development in the wildlife. So again, we showed them. It's like, you know, and yeah, so of course, part of, part of, some of the biologists say, well, of course they like it in there. They can see the wolves for, they can see the predators for a long way away. They feel safer there. And they actually, you know, are sort of, they move where that sort of lower productive landscape. So of course, the fire back at Zama. So in 2012, we had this massive flipping fire, 600,000 acres. And if you followed fires around, the year and the year and two after a fire, we see mushroom pickers. Has anyone ever seen a mushroom picker? Okay, no, anyone see a tree planter? Okay, well they're, okay. When they're a special breed of people, I must say. They're friendly, not a lot of them speak English, a lot of them are from Northern Quebec. They come out, you know, they drove to Zama in like, you know, little cars couldn't figure out how they were going to get to anywhere. It's kind of funny that, you know, they talked to the local Indians and got permission, um, you know, to camp out wherever they wanted. Of course, because there were signs all over, um, our old company was called Apache at that time. So they talked to the Apache Indians and they got approval to be everywhere. Um, so anyways, the buyers were in town and everything. So the 2013, we probably, we probably had just over 200 mushroom pickers plus the buyers in Zama for the whole entire kind of spring, summer, fall. So of course, all of us, we were, you know, good for the, Economy, they're buying probably crazy and cigarettes and all the rest, right? So they would come into the card block. Um, the main store there was where the buyers had set up. And of course, they kept talking about all these caribou they were seeing. And everyone, all the locals were like, okay, they're picking the wrong kind of mushroom. Or like, <laughs> what the heck? Like, no one has seen this. We've lived up here for 25 years or 30 years or 40 years, and no one's seen this many caribou. So, of course, fine. Um, so, as we're down this, we're learning everything we need to know about caribou now. We were sitting in Ottawa with FPAC, the federal um, forestry guys, and their biologists. So we were talking about this story. And I said, like, they're kind of on crack. Like, but again, and she's like, well, no. She says, they always come into a fire because they actually eat the morel mushroom. That's part of their food source if you look at it. So when we actually started doing tracking data with the colored data that we got from the province, we can actually track them. So sure enough, the caribou were kind of all over. And then in 2013, after the fire, after they were displaced by the fires the summer before, they moved back into that area. If we tracked all the big fires in the Caribou Mountain area and in Yates, they moved in the second and third year after fires, and that's exactly what they were doing. So our argument is, should fire be treated as a full disturbance, the same as like an anthropogenic disturbance? Mm -hmm. So that's a funny story. That's one of those things where it's like, I never thought I'd know that. Fires are natural occurrence to start with, and plus you're seeing evidence that it's, it's not disturbance here, but like going there. So. And then, and then back to the disturbance thing, on, the, on these 40 year old survey lines or cut lines, the range planners or the biologists are they're using what a 1 to 50,000 resolution? Yeah. Like they're using shots from outer space to identify these lines, and you can see them on your mapping. Like there will be a dark green area with a lighter green area crossing through that. You get down on the ground, people have gone down and you know, GPS sets, but you can't find it on the ground, right? Trees have naturally regrown to 15, 20 feet, and it's still being classified as disturbed with the 500 meter buffer on either side. So we're fighting a really losing battle of trying to, you know, to, to determine what is disturbed and what isn't disturbed. I know Ray Hills, his group in White Court, he's got some uh, YouTube footage. He's doing a little series there. He's got a helicopter flying over there, and it's just in forestry. And Tom, you know, probably as well as the original green industry. I mean, they plant more trees than what they harvest, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, 
these cut blocks that we're flying over all they all have 15, 20, 30 foot trees regenerated on there and they're still being classified as disturbed, right? So you threw all that fallacy out, you'd be down to like 5% disturbed is what we're thinking. So just, that's why disturbance, 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 that's, that's a huge one for us and, and that's probably going to be our next focus once we get through this, uh, once this plan is finally released and we're going to start going after that definition of disturbance. And that rolls back to that, remember that primary indicator for the federal government and the province is 65% undisturbed mm -hmm. habitat. That's actually legislative, well, not, that's not the legislation, it's policy for the federal government to Sarah. So that's, it doesn't matter. We could have, if we have 250 caribou in the landscape in the Bisbee Range right now, we could jump into all of a sudden 500 caribou in the, and we will still not meet we that target. And so that's what we're saying, this disturbance piece is, is huge. Back to that caribou wildland story where the calf and the cow, but we were flying over there and there was a trail that sort of wandered through the bush. And we got actually pretty low and it was actually a trail kept open by you know the wildlife so it's like the old moose trail and you can see because it, it was just sort of you know the the trough mm -hmm. and so of course it's like there's no way we're thinking there's no way that they did this. so sure enough we gps it and then we went back and actually overlaid it to their disturbance mapping from the feds and guess what it's listed as a disturbance with a 500 meter buffer zone on either side and it's classified that oh we got to take this out of the disturbance so they're actually mm -hmm. even classifying you know, animal, animal trails, trails yeah. and you know, landscape issues like that as disturbance. So it's this that's a huge one for us. Mm -hmm. um, challenge number nine is indigenous treaty rights and sustenance hunting. And again, it's a couple different things here. We do not support anything that uh, affects treaty rights in a negative way. Um, sustenance hunting, we know that we have in our region, we have um, about an equal population of uh, uh, treaty right holder hunters. Um, more than uh, a higher percentage of than any of the rest of the areas of the province. So, you know, we know that sustenance hunting is a big issue. Um, and again, if you, you know, some of the provinces um, sort of takes on that alternate prey, you can't go in there and you take, can't take off moose off the landscape because then, of course, you know, then what do our, uh, you know, sustenance hunters actually hunt? Um, it goes back to the wood buffalo bison issue. If we could resolve the wood buffalo bison, allow the hazama bison to, you know, sort of grow again, even in the territories, that would buffalo bison herd, is the territories between the border and the Mackenzie River have a kill zone because Mackenzie um, bison are, are clean and disease free. Mm -hmm. They're on the north side of the river. So on the south side of that river, they actually have a kill zone. So same around the park, if you see a bison in those areas, it's a shoot to kill order in order to have this disease bison herd, you know, control. And again, it's like, it's kind of an easy fix, but no one seems to want to do that. And then challenge number 10 is that care we don't recognize the lines. And this goes into that inter-transboundary um, issue. Terry mentioned that we were in, um, a year ago, January, we were, there was a contingent of us that went up to the territories to get their feel of what, what, what they were doing and how they were going to attack the, you know, the caribou range planning. One, they didn't really want to talk to us because it's like, oh, you guys, your province is like way out there. Like we're not, nope, we're, <laughs> we don't want anything to do with you guys. And, uh, but what they did say is one of their top three priorities and it came out in their plan was to protect the right to hunt. And of course, right now you can legally hunt every um, territorial resident can hunt two caribou a year and they want to be able to protect that right. So again, uh, if you're going to have these great big huge areas of sterilized land on the Alberta side and you can end up in a freezer on the north side, either we build a wall or you figure out how to actually, you know, put some sort of buffer zone or work with, you know, the territorial side, or maybe we need to actually just adjust that. One of the, the topics of conversation that we had at one of the open houses here last week with one of the main biologists is you'll see on the map, which I should maybe get to one day, but here they have, um, they can track them, right? So there's a ping. 
there's a colored ping on a map of where these caribou are walking. So one of the questions to them was, okay, so say the bitch you heard. We know that they're transboundary. We can see them as they you know, walk across the border and they ping on the other side there. Have you ever checked out how many don't come back? <laughs> that has never, why, and he looks at me and this is the main range planner. He's like, why would that matter? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why that would matter. Maybe because we got to find out what they're, what's happening to them on the territorial side. Like, did they, did the collar fall off? Did they get eaten by wolves? Are they in, you know, jerky? I don't know. Like, but again, that whole trans-jurisdictional thing is going to be a huge issue. Who's going to pay for the wall? <laughs> See, I've said enough, so I didn't drop that one. Thank you. Uh, that's been brought up a couple times. So, okay, so there's in, in the full reports, there's this, these maps and these slides of each individual range. But we sort of, in the condensed version, we sort of, you know, give you a hint. So this is the report, by the way. This is what it, this is what it looks like. That's the province's report. Yeah, that's yeah. what we're dealing with yeah. now, right? But our full report, like the full presentation, oh, has all the maps yeah. on this. Yeah. So this is the Chinchaga range. So it's uh, 1.764 million hectares. So again, it's a fairly substantial land mass. Um, in 2000 present, um, there's 12% that's disturbed by wildfire. And then of course it breaks down like the seismic line disturbance, the forest harvest is 13%. Um, permanent disturbance. So this is the primary number that you gotta look at. Is that permanent disturbance number is 3%. And that's the target number that we're saying, okay, that is probably what's accurate is we're closer to probably that 3% mark. So if you actually look at that all, they're saying that the Chautauqua Range, and if, how many, you guys all know where the Chautauqua Range is? Okay, how many people have been there? Okay, think it's 97% disturbed? <laughs> so again, but if you look at the map, so the pink areas on the map are forestry, so that's actual cut blocks. So forestry is not a really, um, they haven't taken a lot of trees out of that area under current. But if you look at all those areas, it's all those little lines, so that's like a historical, you know, line or a seismic line or a survey line or something plus the 500 meters on either side and then you know that's how they come up to that so um they state that there's 62,000, roughly a little bit more kilometers of historic seismic lines in there and they're at about twelve thousand dollars a kilometer for restoration on seismic to the bare minimum and so what we're saying is like okay well once we, we better figure out what's actually out there we actually had contractors at one of the open houses in manning state that they were hired to go out and do caribou restoration and they were plowing down 10, 15 foot, or 15 foot trees to plant seedlings. And they kept saying, are you sure we're the right spot? Are you sure you guys want us to do this? You know, this doesn't really seem right. So again, you know, just because it, you can see it from space, doesn't necessarily mean that that's what it actually looks like on the ground. Um, part of this range, we have uh, about 5% is under current conservation because the Chinchaga, or the, yeah, Chinchaga Wildland Park is within that range as well. So the second slide in here, so this is where we talk about, and again, on our full report, we have all the, the tracking data. So that bottom one is all the, so every one of those dots is a ping from a, from a caribou collar. Not necessarily, like some of them are multiple times a day, so you know, it's kind of um, amplified. But you can see the Chinchaga range is definitely a cross-boundary herd. Um, that boundary, of course, the other side is um, BC. You can see too that we have issues with, see that, that little bump there that has what, three caribou walked out there? That one and so that's what we're saying too is that there's areas within there you know whoever drew the lines on the map that really don't make any sense for actual you know just because they wandered out there doesn't necessarily mean that that's actual caribou range we heard repeatedly in manning that uh the caribou were coming down out of the chinchaga wildland park into farmland because it's safe that's where they're actually they're cabin behind one of the barns which need to be you know kept confidential so they're you know and of course they're not collared 
So no one actually wants to tell anybody that. <laughs> All of a sudden that becomes a caribou race. Um, so there's a bunch of different issues even around you know how the lines were drawn on the map. Um, the top graph there is, okay, I'd like to say that's a population map, but we kind of got corrected on that one. That's actually a death rate map. Again, that's why the province actually says, oh, well, we'll put this in there. So something about, I'm going to try and regurgitate this. So taking the stats from the amount of color data that they can pull, because they have the cows that are colored. So taking the color data off the cows and then counting them all up or going out to see what they, you know, where they are and if they have calves and then checking the calves six months in to see if they're actually still surviving or however that works. And then there's the margin of error, which is sort of that line there or whatever. So we asked for clarification at the two open houses for this and no one, and I bet there had to be 30 people of the ones standing around us trying, and none of it made sense to any of them. And they were all like, there was a couple of trappers in there and there was a couple of outfitters and there was a couple of cattle ranchers. And that graph didn't make sense to anybody, so I'm not sure exactly what that is. But what we can gain out of that is that yes, there's population drops within the herd. Um, some of those, you know, when we asked, it's like, okay, so especially in the Chinchaga range, are those big population drops you know, sort of if you overlay that to the increase in grizzly bear, does, you know, increase in grizzly bear drop in population caribou? Like, has anyone actually ever looked at that? And we kind of got looked at, well, why would we do that? And it's like, okay, because we have to look at it multi-species, like, <laughs> um, especially in, like, for the Bistu range, same thing, is that we had some pretty big drops after the fire um, on our bison calf recruitment. Um, because of course, well, they were displaced because of the fire. And then that, uh, that year after that was a uh, heavy snow and then they had a late frost. So of course the cows were already on the ground and then we, you know, dropped to add about a minus 25 sort of two days uh, when the cows were real young. So our calf recruitment was, you know, kind of decimated off the get go. But that was the one year in the about 10 years that we didn't actually have a hunt that year because of, you know, the population just didn't, um, wasn't conducive to that. And if you actually link it to the calf drop, in the in the caribou it's the same year so it really has nothing to do again with industry or footprints or whatever else some of it's actually just sort of you know nature so just one thing too because you've only highlighted the chinchaga range in this, yeah. this presentation so there's, uh well there's it's coming probably some uh, yeah this year coming is but on the bottom of each one of them this is coming out of the government's report that last line on each one of them designation to contribute to alberta's goal of protecting 17 percent terrestrial areas by 2020. So just keep that in the back of your mind because we'll talk about that later. That becomes very important in this the whole mess that they've created. So in, a, in an effort to keep this shorter, which doesn't seem to be working well for me, but <laughs> the Vista Range, um, again, is 1.4 million hectares. It's 32% um, wildfire, but again, we had that 600,000 hectare fire in there. 91% man-made um, disturbance, which again, um, if anyone's ever been north of Nama, um, that's not a realistic um, thing at all. Forestry tenure is about 61% of the range. Oil and gas is about 19. But again, we've been under a lease moratorium for 171 townships, a lot of it within that area since 2012. And if you know anything about oil and gas or mineral leases, they only last for five years. And so if you can't actually operate in there or get in there to do anything, then you actually lose your, your lease. So a lot of the leases that were sort of renewable at that 2013 and, you know, more, pre or more um, recent have been, you know, sort of given up, not necessarily by choice, but because they actually just didn't meet the requirements of holding the lease. The report states that it's 94% disturbed, um, 62,000 kilometers of historic seismic lines, but again, you know, you can't necessarily see the seismic lines when you're out there. 
There's 157 collared animals and they estimate about 257 estimated um, in that range and the herd is actually, they classify that as stable. The candidate area, that F20, is 646,000 hectares, so it actually comes out to be about 45% of the Bistu Lake range is what they want to protect. And again, as Terry mentioned, the designations that contribute to Alberta's goal of protecting 17% terrestrial areas. So again, if it's about caribou, let's actually target caribou restoration for population increasing strategies, not just drawing a line on a map and saying, hey, we met our 17% target that you know the feds say that we also have to meet under this different plan over here. The Yates Range, which is why I said that Highway 35 actually runs up through it, is 522,000 hectares. So you see how you know the land mass that we're talking about here is massive. 36% wildfire, 61% anthropogenic. Um, there is this report states that 74% disturbed. Again, this is cross-boundary herd. Um, there is 91 animals colored, and it is estimated that there's 236 estimated animals, and the, the herd is stable. The range is already 14% under conservation area because there's a tip of that range that goes into Wood Buffalo National Park. And then the candidate area, well, the F10, would add another 660,000 uh, hectares to it. So again, it would be an additional 25% of the range. Um, again, this one right now, other than the Caribou Wildlands or the, or the Wood Buffalo National Park, if you look on the, the full um, presentation where the map, where the, where the colored data, where you can see them, none of them, I think maybe one, there's one venture dot into Wood Buffalo National Park. So it's like, you don't even like it in there, but yet it's in part of that park. <coughs> right. You got those friggin' walls. Maybe, that walls. could be. It got nailed right off the get-go. Um, so if you look at these two, so the Bistu Lake Range and the Yates Range are the only two ranges out of our four that have zero, other than that little bit of the Wood Buffalo National Park that no one goes into anyways, but that you know, does not have a huge conservation land attached to it like the Caribou Wildland Park or um, Chinchaga. And those two herds are actually stable. They also say too is that, and all the biologists, the provincial biologists state this, is the estimated animals say if it's a 257 or 236 or whatever it is, they really have no idea. They feel that they're, that is probably a, you know, a very low number, a very low estimate, because caribou are so hard to count. So the caribou mountain range, um, this is the big one for us because it basically has 57% of this range is already under protection. It's um, 2 million hectares, 45% wildfire, 37% man-made, which is a little bit sort of concerning considering that there's only 28% of the forestry tenure in there, but actually there's no roads in there to actually get any of the trees out of it. And I don't know how they get this, but oil and gas leases are less than 1%. Again, not sure how they get a less than 1% um, issue in the provincial plan, but of course, again, it's cross-boundary with NWT. Um, well, this one's not BC, sorry, that's a typo. Um, and the Yates Range, as well as Wood Buffalo National Park. There's 143 animals collared, um, and they state that this herd is declining with 352 estimated animals. The other issue that we have too is that in the federal strategy, as well as the provincial guys, they say that 100 animals could be a sustaining herd. All of our herds in our area, except there might be an issue in Chinchaga, on their estimates, is that they're well over the 200 animal mark, but yet they're not classified as self-sustaining. And, and through our open houses, talking to a lot of the old timers, the trappers that have trapped and lived out there for years, they said those herds never were big. They're all, they've always been traditionally small herds that they've seen they dealt with. So these numbers are probably historically, you know, greater than they've ever been. I don't remember what his name is, but he's actually in the documentary video, and he basically says he says I grew up in out in the bush. I grew up in the, on that trap line. 
And he said back then it was there was 150 animals and 45 years, you know, and that was before oil and gas in the Peachwater Range. And he said 45 years later, they're still the same under 150 animals. So you can't really tell me that we have a caribou, you know, population problem when, you know, it's, all, it's always been that time. They're small, stable herds. Yeah. So. so this is that graphic I'm talking about that they're using. And of course, you can backtrack that. So, you know, they say increased disturbance equals increased alternate prey, which means increased predators, which means, you know, decreased caribou. So if you listen to what the province is actually stating, if you're gonna increase caribou, you need to decrease the predators, decrease alternate prey, and decrease the, you know, the people on the landscape. And you know, you'll get that sort of magic number at the end. Um, so these are some of the, the, the details that came out of the, uh, the provincial report. Again, it's a lot of uh, to be determined, um, details to follow. There isn't a lot of, uh, there isn't a lot of details. They talk about integrated land management or regional access management plans. So basically forestry and oil and gas working together using the same roads. They talked about zonation and aggregated harvesting um, for forestry, which is a complete um, you know, sort of different way that they're doing now. Zoned development has some concern for a lot of people. Um, if you know, you gotta push all the development in a certain zone for you know 10 or 15 years. And then after that, you know, you go in and you do the reclamation, you can't go back there for another 60. In areas like this, if you think about this, it's like, okay, so Peach River could boom for the next 10 or 15 years. All of, you know, the everything is sort of, you targeted here. This is the area that you're going to do it. And then after that, you move out, you don't see nothing else for 50 years. Well, that doesn't really work for sustainable communities and it doesn't work for municipal infrastructure. You know, there, there's a whole bunch of things that are wrong with that. It might work for caribou, but realistically, let's put a realistic lens over that. Does it actually work for, you know, the landscape? Um, one of the things that they, um, they've listed that no direct security of continued recreational and hunting access will be maintained and to what extent and to which ranges. And again, our um, outfitters had a real big issue with this one. You know, they've had a struggle keeping what they have as um, outfitting business. They've always tried, you know, last quite a few years, they've tried to increase um, that um, industry. And of course, they've, you know, seen resistance. And this actually states that you know what, it might not actually be able to be continued. And again, in 39% of our land base, because it's that caribou range completely, not just under um, conservation areas. Yeah, and I mean, that could even affect the Ottoman outfitters. It's uh, the First Nations and Indigenous people that have a traditional right to hunt. They don't have access. How are they going to get there? Because they've been very clear that, you know, treaty rights will not be affected. But they're very clear also that, you know, within conservation areas, there will be no new footprint and all footprint all footprint will be restored and in the rest of the caribou range there will be minimal footprint and restoration will be targeted so again if you can't get to your hunting grounds you it's sort of a new point a um, couple of things that are again um, revegetation of transmission lines and pipelines will be required this is a complete fundamental change on transmission lines and revegetation of um, pipelines and i don't know about you guys but okay i live in dama so when trees get, you know, when we do not like trees under a power line, because when we have a power outage, it's like one, they have a heck of a time finding it. And two, it's always like a really big fix. So three, and it always happens in January. So, you know, it's always cold. So again, when you're talking about revegetation of pipelines and transmission lines, again, it might sound really good on a, you know, just if it's all about caribou, but again, a realistic approach, is that actually going to work? Are we going to actually change the way pipeline companies operate and make them revegetate lines 
so that they can't, you know, they have a harder time doing, you know, inspections or fixes or whatever. You know, that's sort of a, a fundamental. One of, our, one of our many meetings, we met with uh, biologist Kara from, uh, from Asheville Electric. She came up from Edmonton to meet with us, and they, Asheville has a real big problem with that one revegetation of transmission lines. And she said that, in her mind, whoever wrote this report copied and pasted from the oil and gas pipelines and put it on the transmission lines because it makes no sense otherwise that uh, well at ATCO so you got ATCO and Fortis are the two big distribution companies in the north part of the province like north of the 55th basically and neither one of those companies has been allowed or reached out to or have had a conversation with the caribou range planet so that tells you right there that realistically they're missing you know they're missing the whole big picture one of the things too, again, so new sand and gravel pits uh, developed within the caribou ranges cannot export material out of the range, only allowed um, in, and only allowed outside the conservation areas. So there'll be no sand and gravel operations within conservation areas. And if you actually remember where those ranges are, um, through up through Highway 35 into the territories, there's of course the Wishy Range on one side and the Yates Range on the other. Along that highway, there is some um, some pretty big uh, gravel deposits and some pretty big Alberta transportation gravel pits, actually. And so now they're going to be out, probably the province will be exempt, but you know, they, they can't take that gravel outside and use it outside the range. South of Rainbow Lake and the Chinchaga Range, the Chinchaga Range kind of comes up just south of Rainbow Lake. There's gravel pits right now that are being used for Highway 58 and in the town of Rainbow Lake. And if this goes through, they won't be able to take and use those gravel pits, like that gravel that's just right there, and use it in the town of Rainbow Lake or on the highway again, it might be exempt, but, but it just makes, it makes no sense. So you're going to what? use gravel in the range that you're not allowed to be in anyways it's sort of like again we're not going to affect industry but we're going to restrict them to the point where it really doesn't make sense to actually do anything um so this is sort of a calving thing so they're, they're rearing facilities again it's like okay the caribou in the middle they you know remove all the moose and the deer the wolves and the bears and the export yearlings and of course when we bring this up we can't even actually discuss this one in the chinchaga range because again if you mentioned you remember back to that map is that they've been you know they've reintroduced um, grizzly bears into the chinchaga range for years and the grizzly bears are thriving but again so they did a, a hair sample where they set up barbed wire fences in the chinchaga range and took samples and actually there's a really interesting map in the provincial office down here about that so there's this map on the wall we're sitting there for something completely different and there's this map on the wall there, look at, they're showing all these sites where they have these barbed wire fences set up that they've taken hair samples from grizzly bears. And the one site, they actually collected 45 different, or DNA from different grizzly bears on one piece of fence. And it's like, okay, can we overlay that to the caribou map? And is there any dots in that area? Because I bet you there isn't. Because <laughs> if the grizzly bear like it, there's a caribou definitely don't. So you can see on the, the chart on the, on the left, um, the LARP, um, which is the Lower Athabasca Regional Plan, which is where that first 171 townships came back in 2012 in our area, those were the conservation areas that were listed under that plan. And then under the candidate, or candidate conservation areas for under Caribou, there's you know 31,000 hectares out of the Kakwa um, expansion, and all of the rest of them are all up here. So out of the 16 ranges in the province, the only three um, new candidate conservation areas all happen to be in the northwest corner, where there's not a lot of people and it looks there's really no, bare on the map. And no oil sounds. And no oil sounds, right. So there's some additional information. Um, you want to do this one? So there's some, and I, I guess to just 
sort of work into, is that we're not the only ones. We kind of touched on, you know, the AMDNC and AUMA and the Alberta Chamber of Commerce, all the other provinces, organizations, like municipal organizations are being, you know, sort of being pushed um, by this as well. There's, you know, the forestry associations, there's oil and gas associations, like everyone's sort of saying the same thing, that this doesn't make any sense. So, yeah, so they, they estimate there's uh, like 3.8 million caribou spread across Canada. I mean, that's including the barren lands and the, and the mountain caribou. And globally, they're abundant as well. Um, they call them reindeer in some countries, Eurasia. So this is one of the most uh, populous species of ungulates uh, on the planet, and yet we're given them a status of species at risk. Uh, Alaska fishing oh, wait, oh, so on that one too. So basically, it's kind of like, okay, so how many, we talked to the, say, the Alberta Ranchers Association. So how many had a cattle are in Alberta? They have a number, right? I don't know what that number is, but pick one, like a million, okay? But that's what's what they talk about. But do, okay, do they break that down to like, how many Texas Longhorn and how many, what's the, what's the Angus. black, Angus, what's the black and white ones that do the milk? Yeah, Whatever. You know, they don't break it down like to that, right? That's but this milk. is what these guys have done. Basically, there's 3.8 million caribou across Canada, but we have barren, we have woodlands, we have mountain, and we have, there's one other one in Ontario. But they broke them down to basically where these little herds where they live. So again, you take any species, it doesn't really matter. We could all of a sudden have a black Angus issue in Alberta because we don't have enough. But if you break it down to a certain level, you're eventually going to get a number that's so small that you can call it's it at risk. Yeah. It's at risk. Yeah. yeah, that's what they've done with the woodland caribou, right? Basically, I mean, there, we have lots of caribou in the country, but just we don't make enough woodland caribou. And as soon as they become domesticated, they're called reindeer. So the Calgary Zoo has reindeer. They actually, I got pictures at the craft sales when we were down there for AUMA, but they're called reindeer, they're not called caribou. Yeah, but they're caribou. So, we have a point here Alaska Fish and Game. They've proven that uh, the bears up there thrive on, uh, on moose and caribou calves, right? Uh, they estimate that bears killed an average of 34.4 moose and caribou calves in about 45 days, so, so it's just more evidence that. Bears, um, caribou calves are part of their diet. So on that one, they had, um, they had a year-long plan where they uh, video colored. I can't remember how many, but they had uh, eight video colors that like made it through, like didn't get wet or didn't fall off or whatever. But they had eight uh, video colors over the course of the year, and like they watched all that group of footage, and that's how they actually. So they had like a bird's eye view of how many caribou calves that bear happened to be eating. So. The Alberta Forest Product Association, um, the role of factors like climate change, mountain pine beetle, habitat quality, predator-prey relationship needs to be better understood. And, and those are some of the things that we've incorporated in our recommendations, especially the predator-prey relationship. And we need to ensure accurate counts of the herd population, which again, these collared data, or the numbers that they're getting from them are just extrapolated numbers, so nobody really knows for sure how many are out there. And, I've worked a lot in the bush too, and they are very elusive. They're not like moose or, or deer, they are hard to count. And so the caller data is probably the best data they got to go on, but we don't know how, how accurate it really is. And, and the AFPA is making decisions to put forests and jobs at risk without making the best available science would be irresponsible, and that's another message we're getting out. And CAFCA with the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers states we are collaborating with the government towards a working landscape in Alberta, one that balances environmental protection with the opportunity to develop our natural resources, forest, mines, and energy. Any caribou recovery strategies undertaken 
must take into account the potential social economic impacts to resource dependent communities. So again, they're, they're echoing the same thing that we've been preaching. And, and we've met with CAP on a few occasions and they're very supportive of what we're doing and, and they, they have the same struggles that uh, the forest industry does. <coughs> so this long-term research by Dr. Rob, how do you say his name? Save caribou, don't shoot wolves, shoot moose. I mean, that's some of the idiosyncrasies that we, we come across. So the next couple pages are basically, you know, other quotes that kind of came out. Some of them are from like Mary, or Marianne Chichak, but another vocal uh, member, Mayor Whitecourt. Um, so there's some of the quotes basically over the last, you know, couple months we've been um, tracking it down. Um, so from, you know, sort of more recently, um, the things or the ways that we can get them, you know, sort of have your voice heard is some of these things here. We have, uh, these actually went out to all of our mailboxes. So there's the petition, um, there's the government online survey and that's actually, there's a link on our website, but it's also right directly from the ADP website. You have to register to actually put a, your two bits in, but we urge everyone to go in there and actually voice some concerns, even if it's just a matter of, you know what, I have never heard of this before, or I do not have, you know, any sort of information, please send me. Um, we have the postcard campaign coming out, um, the high level meeting on March 8th and again, the, or March 6th and then the meeting in um, Grand Prairie on March 8th is crucial for that as well. And then basically follow Facebook, share. Um, I know I've done some sharing on some of the piece of our political new Facebook pages, which are kind of interesting. Um, but, uh, you still can't talk to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to look at wait, wait, is he a counselor? No, he's not. Okay, we're good. Um, and then again, you know, the right letters to Premier and the Minister. And I guess the big thing for that too is that, you know, you guys, AUMA um, supported um, the resolution. I know that this is going to probably come back at an AUMA level as well. So, you know, we hope for your support on, on that one um, too. So, uh, other than that, I know that's I, that's a lot of information to condense. Um, this is a, just a real high overview of the government's approach to caribou recovery. So I'll leave it here you guys do. I only got the one copy, but this is what they're distributing at their open houses. So it's just kind of a real nutshell to kind of strategies. So, questions? So, the, the issue sounds like the, the GOC, Government of Canada, has said, thou shalt protect caribou because it's a species that's at risk, and our metric is 65% undisturbed land, uh, because our feeling is take care of the habitat, the caribou will take care of themselves. And, uh, and so the government of Alberta has to put in a plan. So they're struggling to put in a plan to meet the government of Canada criteria. So, yes. Yeah. Okay, back up though. So the federal government, yes, you're up, you're right up until the point where you need to add a sentence in there. So 65% undisturbed territory or undisturbed habitat over space and time. So they're not expecting that 65% to be undisturbed today or even tomorrow, but as long as that there is a process in order to get to that. And what we're saying is first we need to actually figure out is it 65, like what are we actually at for disturbance? The province then takes that and if, you know, again, they have time to be able to put the strategies in place to say, okay, this is what we're going to get to. Some of the other provinces like Ontario has actually stated, you know what, this isn't working for us and we need two years to figure out what our actual disturbance rating is. 
So they have actually their client to the to the, gov to the federal government to say, you know what, this is what we're doing. We're we're not doing nothing because of course that's the big thing. Well, as soon as you're not, well, you're just you don't want to do anything. Like you know, we, we can't do nothing. So what their plan is is to basically say take the next two years, get that data that they're missing, look at the on the ground disturbance and all the rest of it to actually put their own mapping together to see how far they are off, and then do some of the same strategies like predator control and all that kind of thing. Of course, the territories are looking at it that you know they're. You know they can say whatever they want about habitat they're doing some you know pretty ingenious things with fire they're saying same thing is that one they can't afford to fight fire so <coughs> fires are going to be part of their disturbance rating they can't afford that between what their permit or what the territorial budget is for firefighting and then even just access and all the rest of it and they believe that fire is a natural sort of um, regenerative so they're actually pushing back saying fire shouldn't be part of the disturbance um, formula um, or it should be a not as great a ratio to man-made disturbance. So, and, and what Lisa said about the 65%, no, about doing nothing. So if you do nothing, then they'll put a, a protection order in the federal law. Correct. They could. Yeah. And, 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 and of course, uh, the NGOs, uh, the environmental groups, the non-government, like the CPAWs and the Greenpeaces and Alberta Wilderness, Pemina, they all would love that. They, they're they're chomping at the bit to, to sue the government uh, for not province is not doing enough so I think this caribou file was too big that they wouldn't put a protection order in that's my personal feeling like they did do it in southern Alberta on the sage grouse because in that county that municipality the province didn't act fast enough on the sage grouse which was the species at risk this was in the county of Warner and, uh, and the government uh, federal government did move in and it was pretty heavy-handed like they shut down a lot of industry they put restrictions on traffic on noise they put uh, had to have sharp pencils so the owls couldn't perch on them and, and prey on these grows. Uh, height of buildings. Height of buildings and pitch on the roofs and all sorts of good And you have to get uh, permits in order to grade the municipal roads because the, the grass on the side um, certain types of the year is habitat. Yeah. So I, I, that was almost like a shot over the bow that this is a power that the, the Environment Canada has, like the Canadian Wilderness Association, that they can issue a protection order and they could do that with caribou and grizzly bear and barnfall and all of them. but. Will they? I think if we're showing any kind of a, I think it's a promise to miss any kind of a plan at all that shows action, and they'll, they may say, no, that's good, you're doing fine, but we need more, right? That's kind of the approach we're taking. So even though the minister makes it sound like it's very heavy-handed that if we don't do something, they're going to come in and, you know, tomorrow and get a protection order, we're all going to be in trouble. I, okay, which minister? The federal minister Phillips, the environment yeah. minister, right? Okay. Okay. Yeah. They keep using that as their, their kind of their hammer over us. It's not our fault. This is the federal government's plan, right? We're just following what they're telling us to do. Do you want a protection order? You know, we got to do something, right? So, and see, we've met with um, the federal bureaucrats, so not McKenna, like not Minister McKenna, but kind of low, you know, sort of her top level bureaucrats, as well as the species at risk sort of staff and uh, their departments. And right from the start, and that hasn't, and the feeling hasn't changed is that at the federal level, those guys are actually, that those departments are actually, you know what, we need to increase the number. Yes, we know that that 65%, and it's not legislated, it's in policy, but we know that that 65%'s in there and it's causing everybody grief, but again, they keep saying, that's what keeps saying, it's over space and time. So as long as you're moving forward to, to that goal or you're showing that you're you know doing what you can, but again, if what they're saying is that, you know what, they kind of have a, if you can, if you can prove that the species is actually you know, increasing or it's stable because again, if we, if it if the animals at 257, 
and it's been 257 for 30 years, we'd be supposed to be 257. You know, who actually knows that? So what they're saying, we've always had greater sort of a feeling of that they're actually going to work with municipalities at that federal level than at the provincial level, which is actually kind of scary. Okay, so going back, so, so there's, the federal government has said, we want a metric of 65%, time and space factors into that. The provincial government goes, okay, we need to get to that metric and to avoid this protection order. And so they're trying to put in a plan in place. So, and part of this plan is to take these landscapes, for lack of a better word, and put them into making 65% undisturbed and therefore, and that's your objection is that that's going to impact the province economically and... Well, because the Hemel Ranges, you got to remember everything is under moratorium at Hemel Ranges, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the problem for industry. 65% undisturbed or not, there's still going to be heavy restrictions within those ranges. Um, I mean, trying to claw back to their definition of disturbance is going to be very extensive and prohibitive, but also everything that's within the range is under moratorium. I guess to go back to what you're saying, though, is that, okay, so the province came in with their draft plan that paid this 101.6 million, 1.8 million hectares for the protected candidate areas. That was the only thing that they recommended for our northwest corner. They did not recommend, you know, working with the trappers and doing predator management. They did, they said, okay, well, restoration will be paid for by industry. Well, if you basically restrict 39% of the land base, you're not going to have any, any industry to pay for it. So if industry is operating south of Fox Creek, are they going to want to, or should they have to, pay for restoration in an area that, one, they maybe never have been, because it's the, you know, Wood Buffalo National Park or the Cable Wildland Park. So they never actually said, okay, well, or even, you know, we're going to take these candidate areas and this is the plan to do that restoration to that 65% undisturbed, you know, within those candidate areas. None of the other strategies that they've, you know, sort of implemented, whether it be rearing facilities or, you know, predator management or even targeted restoration was a plan for Northwest Alberta, except 1.8 million hectares were going to carve it out as a park, call it a protected area, and maybe we won't get sued by CPAWS and maybe we won't get a protection order. And that's what we have an issue with. So you're going to sterilize land, but you're not going to do anything else to it. So again, we already have, you know, 31% of our land base is under a protected notation or a park land designation as now. Fix the parks, you know, put the restoration dollars from the province, like fork over some or get some from the feds because it's their idea, and actually do some restoration if required in targeted areas within the current protected areas. And if that actually alone if that's the only thing you need to do is and the caribou start driving perfect i guess we found the solution but we're saying that's probably not going to be the answer right so your your objection is, or your criticism is that the 65 percent metric metric is not the right metric <coughs> that, it's, that it's not attainable yeah. the way they actually have the, the, the definition of disturbance the way they have it right now um, and that's the be all end all is that 65% undisturbed um, habitat. It, and for caribou alone, right, that is, com I, it is completely unrealistic. And, and it doesn't matter which, if you're talking northern Ontario or northern Alberta or, you know, southern part of NWC. And part of your argument is that there doesn't seem to be a correlation with the, this definition of undisturbed habitat and caribou population. 
understood from what you were saying is that uh, I'm, I'm getting the impression it isn't that you don't want to protect caribou. Not at all. It's that <laughs> what you're saying is, is that this isn't a plan, but that one of the solutions might be the land use framework and allow the conservation to come through that process. Yes. Because again, and that looks at it not just caribou, that looks at the grizzly bears, that looks at the bison, that looks at moose habitat, that looks at you know wetlands, that you know, there's a whole bunch of things that are gonna come down the pipe on that. So, you know, even Silvicon, so CPAWS has actually done some work on critical habitat. So they have some mapping on critical habitat. So if you actually look at the caribou range they envisioned you, there's a very small piece on the north side of the lake, right against the territory's border, that they classify as critical habitat for caribou. Okay, so why is it CPAWS, which is the one that's already suing the federal government for inaction, has this little spot up here, but yet the province wants to take this huge spot. So does it really have anything to do with caribou? It has to do with meeting the 17% protected land by 2020. Because we're saying, if this is the area, and if, you know, all of a sudden, because, but again, in, in the Chinchaga range, if you have a little area designated by CPAWS, that's critical caribou habitat, that's great, let's look at that. As long as that's not critical grizzly bear habitat too, because that doesn't really work. So you have to layer all those things together. Well, and also what I hear is that you don't want to see data excluded on philosophical grounds if you're not going to exclude all data on yes. In other words, if you're going to allow this special interest group's data because it's philosophically okay, you should be, you should be suspect of all data that's philosophically biased. And if you're going to look at data, you should verify it. But does it verify? If it verifies, who cares where it comes from? And I mean, a large part of what you're talking about is that you've got data that's conflicting with the data that they're using. But they go, well, that's not good data because we don't trust the guy who said it. Well, they're not doing a data check on the other guys either. So I mean, the Synovus, no, CNRL. CNRL just actually finished here a couple months ago. They did a report in the northeastern side. And they wanted to know on cut lines and you know roadways or whatever vegetation height and how that corresponds to predator species. So they've actually did it. It was about a six month thing, I think, or whatever. And the report's really big. And of course, do any of you guys know Crystal McIntyre? She's mayor of High Level. Okay, well she's our teacher, so she read pen. She's a report reader, and she read pen stuff. And you know, then she you know does the Cole's notes, well Crystal's notes summary version. But actually, that report I read in its entirety because it actually was pretty interesting. So what they actually looked at was that, okay, how high and what type of vegetation has to be on a cut line or on a pipeline in order for the predators, wolves, to basically slow down so that the caribou can actually outrun them. If you've ever seen a caribou, they're not that swift. And um, they kind of, yeah. yeah they, they kind of run funny and, yeah. So, are they, are they very gross to the animals? Kind of. Okay. <laughs> actually, that's a really good, yes, they are. Just dumb. Which is a whole other story on coloring, but yeah. So basically what they what they came up with is that the first major drop, so 50% of the speed of the predator, the first that 50% drop is at 30 inches. So if vegetation on a cut line is 30 inches, okay, that is the first big 50%, that's the 50% drop in their speed. And then it kind of goes up from there. So you don't need 15 or 20 foot trees in order for maybe that disturbance to instead of be at 100% to start dropping. Because again, it's all the way you calculate the disturbance rate, right? So, you know, again, but they're not looking at that. They're, um, TOCO is working with Dr. Tom Nudds in our area to do DNA analysis on scat and to say, okay, is the herd that's in the territory related to the Bistu Lake herd? 
Should the Bridge Lake and the Gates Herd, are they separate populations or are they actually one population that just happens to live on either side of the highway? You know, like there's, because again, that changes the range yeah. and that changes what disturbance rating is, like that 65% of the range. You know, there's, there's a whole bunch of different things, but again, they're not necessarily looking at all of that. They're looking at disturbance mapping and what's best for caribou itself. So yeah, there's a lot of kind of, what was I gonna say about the, just triggered another story I can't remember now. So they've changed their focus in the last, what was it, six years? But before that, they actually had an upwards of 60% mortality rate when they collared a caribou. Mm -hmm. Because they basically scared them to death. Yeah. So, you know, they've changed the way they collar now. You know, but even that, maybe we need to actually put some research dollars in, maybe hanging them with a dart gun from the air so you don't even have to <coughs> collar them. You know, because right now they're collaring calves and they're these tearaway or they fall off or whatever it's like well let's hope they fall off before the next tubing but you know maybe that's a mortality issue who knows but you know even right there they're you know how many caribou did they lose actually researching them we're not exactly so when we talk to anybody that has any influence um uh, we want to say to them in supporting your cause say uh, we want to say the data is not sufficient we want to say what else? Well, one of our big pushes, I guess, is we're overloaded with conservation area already. We don't want any more conservation area in our area. Okay. Um, disturbance, disturbance, disturbance. Yeah, data, data, data. Oh. Disturbance, disturbance, disturbance. And a balanced working landscape. Like, we need to have all of those things. And if you look at it, okay, so one of the conversations I had, so we went to, as Terry mentioned, we were going to all these AAP ones, right? We went to the one in Edmonton thinking, okay, you're going to have the most, you don't think it's wrong, I'm going to generalize, but you have the most urbanites there, and you're going to probably have the most, you know, sort of the NGOs there or whatever else. So I was standing in a group, and of course, they're very, um, the way the sessions are set up, it's like a planning session, so they have all, you know, the boards all the way around. So you kind of wander around, and you kind of read the boards, and then you have to track down a, you know, provincial staff member to ask a question. So there's about probably six or seven of us sort of standing around with this one provincial planner, and there was this lady from Edmonton, and she was talking about, you know, the destruction on the landscape and how you know forestry just clear cuts and you know there's miles and miles and miles and miles of clear-cutted you know destruction on the landscape and she's going on and on and on I'm like okay so I'm trying to be quiet and there's like a cut so it's like okay so just question because I you know I don't live in the city so I'm not exactly sure you know maybe it's a difference of a sort of fundamental difference so I said the Anthony Henday with all those you know 14 million dollar piece overpasses I said is that classified as disturbance to you well, no. Okay, so the brand new subdivision that just ate up a bunch of farmland going to the international airport with those new 600 houses in there, is that disturbance? Well, no. Okay, so the Calgary Ring Road that took up all that land and annexed all that? No. But okay, so you realize that the Anthony Henday and those, you know, subdivisions and all the rest of it, that's never going to be returned to nature, right? It's always going to be there. It may fall apart, but it's always going to be there. The cut block that's not miles and miles and miles and miles big, but the cut block that's actually, you know, taking the wood to build all those houses, once they do that, they plant trees again. And in, you know, a couple decades or whatever else, they, you know, go back in and they continue to manage that forest. And eventually when that resource gets back to a size where they can cut it again, they do the same thing. And it's constantly regenerating. And, you know, other than maybe when the machinery is in there, but not even that, because I've seen a lot of like the moose and all the rest of it are, is you're licking the salt off your truck 
you know, there, there's habitat back into those areas. And so, you know, the energy location that is producing in the rural areas, that's producing the products that is needed to build that Anthony Handy overpass that, you know, you guys need it because you don't want to waste the stoplight. That comes from, you know, a rural area that eventually when that resource is out, it will return to nature and, you know, it might not be exactly the same as it was when they started, but realistically, no land, even if you don't touch it, ever stays exactly the same. So I'm not understanding why you're looking at, you know, sort of a, an industry or disturbance that is sort of movable as a full-blown permanent disturbance or a blight on the landscape. I just, I couldn't, but they're totally, that's, you know, it's like outside the bubble. What was the response? Yeah, kind of like that. It was like, well, what, well, what do you mean? We went through one of the stories in that open sports section when you were at AUMA and passed out the territory. Oh. Yeah, so first we went to AUMA and uh, in Calgary this past, whatever, November. And uh, we're at the trade show. We kind of took over the Rita booth, actually, because that's my other hat. I'm also chair ready. And we handed out care food, which was um, green cotton candy with, you know, the flavor was lichen. And the coffee... Uh, pods and whatever caribou. So of course we're walking around with all this stuff and of course it's like, you know, so I had to test this. And I'm like, because of course it costs cost resolution too, right? So it's not like it's, you know, so I walked around and it's like, okay, what would you think if, you know, the province was going to create like 1.8 million hectares of brand new park in northwestern Alberta? What would you think? Oh, that'd be wonderful. What sort of things we could do there? It's like, how many campsites would be in there? And you know, it's like, if you guys have skiing there and like 101 questions, it's like, okay, let's rephrase the question. If the province of Alberta was going to sterilize 1.8 million hectares of northern Alberta to all resource development, to all mineral development, to all communities and all people, what would you think? Well, they can't really do that, can they? <laughs> so it's just a matter of because people, when they say parks, that's what they view. But parks in our area, you can't access. Wood Buffalo National Park, you can't get to. Caribou Wildland Park, you can't get to. You can't definitely won't be able to put a campsite in there. You know, that's not what our parks and our area are for, right? There's no ski lodges. Yeah, no ski lodges and... Hot springs or... No avalanches. I <laughs> <laughs> guess that's an upside, but... So, yeah. So, I guess the big thing is, you know, balanced working landscape. We need to push um, the regional planning for all of us, upper and lower, because this is not going to end. You know, they're, like I said, they're already working on grizzly bear. They're, you know, Mr. Phillips just came out and backed off the fish. Um, you know, sort of restrictions because not enough data, but that's coming down the pipe as well. If they start talking about farm swallows um, in the next little bit, we're going to be in a world of hurt. Well, my cow will be happy. No, you're no, going to have the that. that, That's going to be that's going to be predator control. <laughs> you haven't haven't set up your yard yet. Those Do we get to build more barns? I don't know. So, and local knowledge is another Yeah, and then the local knowledge, because they're not listening yeah. to the people actually yeah. on the landscape. They're exactly. not listening to those trappers that are out there that are saying, like, look, this makes no sense. Like, like if, if we could do some predator, predator management, they would see instant benefit to the caribou herds, right? And that's the local knowledge tells us that. But so many people ask, you know, what, what's, what's the, one of the biggest, one of the biggest uh, detriments to caribou population recovery is we'll get rid of some wolves. How many times we've heard that over and over from the, the First Nations people, the trappers, the hunters, even the oil workers, the forestry guys, they, they know that the caribou come to us, like they live in the compressor stations, they live in around camps and cut blocks because they feel safe there. Once they're gone, then the wolves move in. And so I mean that you know, local knowledge is, is missing on a lot of the, a lot of this report and, and we try to introduce that to them, but they seem to fall on deaf ears. Like we most of our report was based on 
and backed up by the science that, you know, we have a, out of Clear Hills, there's a company at Clear, she lives in Clear Hills, but there's a organization in Clear Hills that that's what they do. They do care for restoration across the province. I can't remember, it's 160,000 hectares they've actually done for restoration. So basically, caribou restoration is their business in caribou ranges. And what he said, one of the biggest downfalls of a provincial policy is right now, and in caribou ranges, and it's been for years, I've lived in Salmon for 25 years, so for well over 25 years, there's been operating guidelines that are different within caribou ranges. So to say that the previous governments or that industry previously has done nothing is kind of a lie, because they actually have, you know, they have different um, operating agreements within those areas. So what um, this guy said, he said, basically we go in and we get hired to go in and do caribou restoration. So we're going in and doing, you know, little cut lines and, you know, cut, you know, areas or leases or whatever. And he said, we have to go in at a certain time and out at a certain time. Because realistically, as soon as a, you know, calving season starts, you know, you gotta, everybody moves out. And he said, so all winter, you know, those caribou, he says, when we're there, the wolves are. And the caribou come in, you, you see them daily. They even sometimes hang out like beside the equipment. You'll go out in the morning and like they're hanging out beside the warm equipment that's been running all night because it's nice and warm. And he said, so they kind of, you know, but again, they're in there because the wolves aren't. And he said, then because of public, you know, our, our provincial policy, we have to move out just before calving season. So we move out and guess what comes in? And we've heard that multiple times with the, with the well operators and the plant operators in Chinchaga and in Bishu, that the caribou will actually, you know, they'll show up at work in the morning to check the lease or check the location or whatever else. And they'll be hanging out just outside the fence. And basically, once you let them in the fence, all's good because then the wolves are just outside the fence. So the caribou, and I know, you know, even in Zambo, we've had caribou within town because the wolves aren't in town. So they're kind of adaptive. And just because there's people in the landscape doesn't necessarily mean that that's a detriment. Of course, hunting seems to be an issue, but that's the people problem, but yeah. So land use framework, disturbance, 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 data, 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 local knowledge, and we need to keep a working landscape in order to have sustainable communities. And no more parks. And no more parks. Because parks are not a rainforest. Parks do nothing for caribou populations of the cities. Wood buffalo and caribou mountains are a perfect example. What's been the format of these meetings? So the meeting that's in high level on the 6th, I'm able to go to the one in Grand Prairie on the 8th. Well, what is the format? Is this like an open, you just come so, in and chat? Or? So like Lisa already explained, so we have a big hall there, Grand Prairie, and then around the perimeter they have all these information boards, and it, it mingles amongst the information board, they have these little sort of blank pages on it with, with sharpies there that you can leave comments on, and then there's facilitators sitting at tables in the center of the room that you can go sit down and talk one-on-one -on -one with them, and amongst the room there's Probably a couple dozen professional uh, wildlife officers to biologists to range planners. They're all identified with they got landlords on their neck with their names on them, so they're open to so that's there's no actual sit down presentation sort of like this where they say seven o'clock we're gonna give you a presentation, no, it's just kind of a come and go all day. See when we were in White Court they had so it's open from three till eight, so I think they're all three till eight. Um, White Court Chamber of Commerce as well as industry had a panel beforehand. Um, so all of a sudden at six o'clock, there was like all of a sudden 200 people in the room. And they said they had a fairly big turnout in White Court throughout the whole entire day. But if you read, I walked around and I took a bunch of pictures of like the comments. And the comments were more frustration, they were questions. People were writing down questions because they couldn't find anyone to actually answer their question or they didn't get the answer to their question. Um, all of a sudden you have like 250 people in the room and you know, instead of actually taking that opportunity and picking up the mic and saying, okay, you know what, everyone just take a, you know, we're gonna take half an hour and then we're gonna walk through this room and I'm gonna explain each one of these, you know, once to everyone in this room. They didn't even take that opportunity to do that. They didn't do that in Edmonton. 
Um, the frustration of the people that were leaving, you know, was probably greater than when they showed up because they're looking at, you know, and of course some of them work in those ranges, like especially because in Edmonton they had all the northeast ones there too. So a lot of people that work in the Fort McMurray Cold Lake areas are actually were in Edmonton, and they're looking at that going, okay, you're saying that that's like 98% disturbed, like. I drive those roads every day, there's no way. So they, you know, they, they didn't get the answers they were looking for and they didn't get clarification on what even the boards meant. So, so what did When I, I sit down and talk, and nail a couple of them. So when we sit down and talk to these guys at the table, is it, are they are they writing anything oh, yeah. down? Are they, so they're taking data. So if we go and say, look, you know, the town contributor is is we're looking for you know a little bit more you know robust research on this and collecting data, you know that kind of thing. They're going to be collecting that, and they will take that back. And the other thing you need to ask them too when you go in there, especially from the town, because EMI is a big employer here, and it's a big issue, is you need to say, okay, in your socioeconomic plan that you guys are putting on, we hear you guys are doing one, because they're going to, or if you bring it up and say, okay, well, we want a socioeconomic plan done, they're going to go, we'll do one, check, and say, okay, what does that actually mean? Are you going to be able, is Peace River going to be able to pull the data and say, what does this affect, how does this affect the town of Peace River? How many jobs are we protected, you know, going to our potential, you know, in danger for just the direct industry, plus all the trickle down? How is it going to affect property values? How is it going to affect, the, you know, the sales of the, you know, are we going to have enough people left to, you know, deal with, you know, or support all of the dealerships in town? Like, what's it going to do to our community? And they're not going to be able to tell you that because that is, and they, but they need to be able to hear that and make sure someone writes that down. That's right. Because it needs to get to that community level. Because you're, your ratepayers and your businesses are going to ask to say, okay, how does this, what does this mean for me? And like the high level chamber of commerce, um, they are, you know, they're, they're trying to find that data as well. Like, okay, what does this mean? Uh, the Creek chamber of commerce has been fairly, um, active in, okay, if you, if we take out this many forestry jobs, which then that trickle down effect. So how many of our businesses within the hamlet of the Creek actually have, you know, rely on those businesses? Like on those industries, and they, you know, they're trying to find that data. It's a little bit hard because a lot of stats can data is a little skewed because you move north of Edmonton. But you know, that's what we need to know before the range plans are done. Because it's easy to say after, oh yeah, it affected this many people. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, thanks. thanks. Yeah. <laughs> expand, to what, expand to what Lisa said. All their data, the stats are using um, in the report. They said the town of Rainbow Lake. If, uh, if you know, if we lost some oil and gas industry up there, it would only affect. 32% of the population of Rainbow Lake because that's all that's engaged in oil and gas. So that's, yeah. Because according to SASCAN, if you look at SASCAN data in the next coast, probably 32% are directly employed by Husky. So that's the checkbox they did on there. Everyone else is service, trucking, you know, but yeah. if you don't have oil and gas in Rainbow Lake, you're not going to have any of that. So those guys all leave and they take their kids. There's less kids in school and I lose my other job too. Great. Yes. Yeah. And it's just, you know, because if there isn't an oil industry in Rainbow Lake, they don't, they don't have forests. That's right. They don't, so, but again, the province is looking at that, oh, well, 32%. That's maybe acceptable, an acceptable loss, right? So at the meetings as well, there's actually Nichols Applied Management is the um, company that's been um, 
hired to do the assess or the socioeconomic, and those guys have been at everyone every meeting. So even if you nail those guys, part of the, the question that we had for them too is like, okay, you're going to backdate it to 2012 when the first moratorium went on, or how about 2016 when the full moratorium went on? Because if you don't actually have again, where's the baseline? Well, the baseline is today. Okay, so we haven't come, we haven't rebounded from when the price of oil dropped. We definitely haven't rebounded or had any sort of, you know, we've been under another moratorium since 2016. So you're saying this is your economic baseline right now. So it's not going to, like, if it gets worse, we're dead, basically. Like, it's like pulling the band aid off slow instead of just ripping it off, right? So we're saying you need to backdate it to when you actually had potential. Like, you think about it, before a couple of the oil companies pulled out of Peach River, what did town look like? A heck of a lot different than it does right now. That's the baseline that they actually have to go by. And that wasn't that many years ago. So, you know, yeah, it's a struggle. There's a whole bunch of gaps across the board. Well, well, you guys let me talk for way longer come, than a half an hour. When you come back from your session, you can start to adopt a reindeer program. <laughs> There's already one of those CPOs yeah, actually has it. And it was actually on um, Treehouse for a year and a half. So it's like, nail them young, right? <laughs> Okay, so we'll leave. There's a couple more of these. I don't know if you guys want them. Do you want these presentations or do you want to paper copy one? Well, thank you for letting thank us you. talk. Yeah. Well, we didn't confuse you completely. The worst thing you can tell me is, oh, we're going to be here till midnight. See, I told you. <laughs> You've never thought of nice counseling with me, have you? <laughs> I think that's why the uh, uh, why I'm not reading. <laughs> Someone else has to control me now. One thing I really like about the way you kind of very serious about this is you talk quickly. Because one of the worst things in the world is listening to Justin Trudeau. No criticism about him as a person, but. I um going um I talk quick. See? Yeah. You know how the last year and a half Lisa talking slow down. Really <laughs> nice thing. Seriously. Well thanks. That's why I agree. Because you get a lot of data very quickly. No, well, thank you. Thanks thank you very much. That's, that's, yeah. that's my council shutting the mic off. Yeah. Yeah. So when you watch those YouTube videos, you put it on one and a half times. This is on a podcast? Really? Yeah, this will probably be the most... The, people will be tuning in just to hear all your anecdotes. Okay, well, I want to... Where do you find the podcast at? It's on the town website. Just remember, oh, Karen, you are the gross. Yeah. Really? That's where we can watch the arena get built through? Yes. Watch the webcam. Okay, I should have asked, can someone explain to me the uh, bridge concept? Because I'm trying to figure that out on that picture, but it's like, where the heck's the new traffic circle? On the other side, on this side of the hill? We'll down sit back there. down, break yeah. all, break <laughs> all the detachment. Sort of below the RCMP. Sort of in there. Where the old town shop used to be. Yeah, there's one there and then one right there. Where they're working, we had a slide, so. Oh, that's a slide. There's a few things to Where's this bridge? Yeah, it looks like it's bridge related. It's not. Okay, well, thank you guys very much. Thank you. You guys have our card. Like us on Facebook. We're trying to get to a thing. And the video. We're hoping Thursday morning, that 20-minute documentary, it is really good. And basically, it is people in the region telling the story. 
So, so you don't want people from Peace River signing that petition? Yeah. That's no. Well, no, we don't do that. No, we don't. Because I that. did. You want to take my name off there? No. Is that going to ruin the? No, because we can't. We can't actively okay. in Peace River. Because then, if, yeah. then we have to add Peace River's population for. Yeah. But right. if you happen to be in the region yeah. and sign it there, right? That's so you'd be working there or whatever else if you live, then we're good. I was physically in Berwyn when I signed it. So Perfect. Okay. That works. Because then we can take the NWSR. I don't hear from Matt getting anybody So, uh, so yeah, I get a, I get a say. I should, I should get to sign it twice. <laughs> well, no, that would be only the cross. You're going to mess up the petition. Mess it up. Order 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 order. Yeah. All right, thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, communication items. Well, she, uh, well, I thought it was going to be a piece of work. So the press uh, went to interview NWSMER. Um, we'll let. So when's Autumn back? Wednesday. Yeah. Okay. So they'll uh, maybe take some of the stuff that they'll listen to the recording and put out highlights. We'll provide her with a condensed version. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. oh, there were some pretty good uh, no, stories there. Oh, we can do key communication if you like now. Or oh, Ms. Ms. McQuarrie, thank you for coming back. Uh, this is so uh, that takes us to key communication items. Is there anything that uh, piqued your interest in this meeting? Everything. Yeah. So, uh, is there um, uh, so? Uh, are there some topics that you want to uh, yep. to do a little more in-depth stuff on? And do yeah. you know what they are? And then we can just maybe dole them out. Well, usually in the past, of course, I've just gone to talk with the CAO to confirm numbers and stuff. Is that possible for you this week? Um, yeah, Tanya you you bells around. Yep, yep. Wednesday, perhaps? Sure. Okay. Yeah, that's how I usually do things. And then... Um, well, what will probably happen on that is, uh, well, we I think we mentioned it. So we have a planner with MMSA, and they're drafting up some legislation that sh should conform to the provincial norms. And my hope is that we will put it out early for a review or comment, because I'm sure that will be quite a few. And hopefully we'll get uh, comments in before we actually address it in, uh, uh, in council. Yeah, okay. And that's our plan. And as you probably know, they won't, um, I guess the cannabis stuff won't come into play until 1st of August. So yeah. we've got an extra month now. Yeah. Uh, apparently they're at as you probably know, uh, Understand Alberta is the second largest medical marijuana importer in all of Canada, next to Ontario. Everything today has that big full page thing about where.
where people are building around Edmonton. Back, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Is that it, you guys? That's it. Yeah, that's, that's it for us. So uh, we dealt with in camera um, and a motion to adjourn. Also, Johanna Downing wins the lottery. Meeting adjourned. All in favor? Yeah.